Unity. Original pamphlet by Henry de Graaf, research by Jim Morris, and standard English translation by Mike Moore. Translator's Notes. For years in the 1970s, Jim Morris combed through the writings of the early brethren to see what they had to say about reception, allowing godly Christians from other churches to participate at the Lord's table. Jim's research and his efforts to get people to read what the early writers had said eventually resulted in him being asked to leave the assembly he'd been attending. Henry de Graaf, being moved by Jim's points and troubled by the difference between what the early writers believed and how the assemblies which we attended ran things, has been working on a pamphlet about this matter for some time. I've helped him out with it a bit, but I can't get people to read it. They complain. They make excuses. It's a good pamphlet. It is, however, intended to reach the consciences of the people in charge in our assemblies. These men are often senior citizens accustomed to reading only the King James translation and hearing ministry pamphlets written in a Victorian style that is quite unreadable to people with modern sensibilities. So what I've done is make a modern translation of Henry's pamphlet. The reason for it is I included Henry's pamphlet in an original form of one of my books and generally tried to get people to read the pamphlet online and noted precisely the same response to it that I am familiar with in the classroom when I see teenagers trying to get through Charles Dickens or Jane Austen, eyes glazing over and then anything to avoid having to finish it. The language these kinds of pamphlets are written in is very outmoded by this point. It is from a century when people did not treat their time in quite so miserly a way, back when people read copiously and more fluidly, so asking someone to actually read something wasn't the huge favor it is now. I don't know if this translation will help, but I've tried. We'll see. What I've done is try to get through the same points with fewer words and using modern English. I've changed out the King James and Darby translation quotations for ESV ones. I have left the wording of the quotes by John Nelson Darby, William Kelly, C.H. McIntosh, Walter Potter, and A.H. Rule alone, of course. So you'll have to deal with that. Thing is, I grew up hearing rumors that what we did at meeting and what Darby and Kelly and others had done back in the day might be a bit different. Well, it's all right here. You be the judge. Where did the brethren come from? If you grew up going to meeting, what goes on there probably seems pretty normal to you. But what do you know about the history of the movement itself? Here are some basics. The Brethren movement mainly started in Dublin, Ireland, and in England in 1827, with Christians interested in simple worship, a clear gospel message, and serious Bible study. A lot of people first heard of these Brethren, who claimed not to be a church, meeting in Plymouth, England, so they called them the Plymouth Brethren. One of the dramatic claims of the meetings that were being held in those days was that they were for all Christians, regardless of what church the Christians were members of. And it was not just for all Christians to attend, it was for all Christians to speak at and fully participate in if they were male. The point was to connect, to get together, to experience Christian unity in a way that wasn't possible at the various churches. So people went to services at Anglican or Baptist or Methodist churches at which they were members. And they also attended and participated in those new brethren meetings, the group Bible study, prayer, and breaking of bread. 
The whole point of their being brethren meetings was for Christians to get together without needing to join and without needing to leave the churches they were already in. The main reason these were called meetings of brethren was because these meetings were not being held by any one church or single Christian group. At church, these people had been usually passive listeners. So these meetings provided more interaction and involvement in prayer and Bible study and worship with more Christians in the area. And the first people involved in the Brethren movement deeply feared these meetings turning back into a church, denomination, or sect and losing their specialness and reason for being. They wrote about this a lot. The Brethren movement quickly spread into Europe, America, and elsewhere. Trouble and division, though, happened almost immediately, soon resulting in two separate branches of fellowships, one known as the Open Brethren and the other known as Closed or Exclusive Brethren. Open groups did not generally require Christians to leave their church groups before they were allowed to break bread and participate at meetings. Closed groups, however, required Christians to leave even other brethren groups they might be associated with. It's still like that today. Nowadays, there are more closed and open groups every single year, but there are fewer and fewer brethren people in the world globally. We keep dividing into smaller and smaller divisions. That splintering started when Victoria was Queen of England, where once what Scripture calls the unity of the Spirit was the point of Christians gathering, soon separation from evil replaced it as priority number one for brethren groups. And what got called evil was whatever people decided it was, owning a radio, for example, or using contraception. In some brethren groups, these evils are still separated from and punished today, with people who indulge in them getting kicked out and ostracized socially. Oddly, the non-brethren churches, for the most part, eventually reversed roles with the brethren ones, and today, you can go take communion at almost any church, apart from a closed brethren one, regardless of what group you may also be associated with. It's weird. Whether closed or open, soon the meetings of brethren had separate church identities and unwritten lists of who were considered members. Code words used to describe membership were terms like gathered or in fellowship. At first, people met to break bread at times which would not conflict with local church services. Eventually, though, meetings were held at times that exactly conflicted for people who might wish to attend both a church service and a brethren breaking of bread. Towns sometimes had several brethren groups in them, many of which would not accept members from the other brethren group. All of this happened within the first generation of brethren people gathering, and by that point, brethren meetings were churches, much like any other. This pamphlet is addressed to brethren in the closed groups, which at this present time are further dividing into more and more groups with fewer and fewer members. You may have heard people disagreeing over the one-place teaching, sometimes called the divine ground of gathering, or the circle of fellowship. A lot of people who attend closed tables and are members there don't really believe the one-place teaching anymore. Neither did Darby, Kelly, or any of the rest. But the one-place doctrine still gets taught at Bible conferences and in reading meetings and at family Bible studies around the world, and it gets pamphlets published about it from Bible Truth publishers every year. This pamphlet mainly quotes from the early brethren, Darby, Kelly, McIntosh, Rule, and Potter, showing what they felt about the idea of closed fellowship. For example, Mr. Darby wrote, 
By invitation, I went to Plymouth to preach. My habit was to preach wherever people wished, whether in public meetings or in private houses. More than once, even with ministers of the National Church, we have broken bread on Monday evenings after meetings for Christian edification, where each was free to read, to speak, to pray, or to give out a hymn. What seems to have happened is that a movement which was started to increase Christians' connections to all the other believers in their community now tends to isolate and insulate its members from them instead. Does this matter? To keep the unity of the Spirit. When the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, there was trouble in the church. Disunity. The Christians in Asia Minor had turned away from Paul, and so he told Timothy, 1. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Number 2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Number three, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And number four, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Timothy was also instructed to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He was told to have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Paul says he was writing to a man of God in a great house where there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. By focusing mainly on cleanliness scriptures, like the latter one there, the various branches of exclusive or closed brethren have stopped paying much attention to a number of other scriptures, ones like the one just above it about getting along, the ones which stress the importance of keeping the unity of the Spirit. Often, whenever there is a love verse about kindness, understanding, connection, forgiveness, unity, relationship, acceptance, or tolerance, other verses about light, separation from and judging evil, are used to kind of cancel those love verses out, to negate or neutralize them. Then we can say that, of course, we'd love to follow the love verses, but that other person's obvious lack of correctness as to the light verses makes us sadly unable to do that with him. And with almost any other Christian in town, it often turns out. What is so quickly forgotten is the need to have grace so that we can obey the scripture and walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But that's viewed as a love verse. Thing is, we aren't obeying the Bible if we divide it up into light and love scriptures and then mainly only follow our favorite of those two. 
We gathered saints claim that we are not just choosing to get together to form a church of our own volition, but that we have a unity, a oneness from the Spirit, that we were brought together and are kept together by Him. Okay, that's our claim. But can it be seen in our dealings with one another, with the Christians in our community? Are we known in our community as a group of Christians who are very united, who love one another very much, and are open-hearted and connected to the rest of God's church where we live? Does our Holy Spirit seem to only want to unite us with Christians who agree with us and who show up at our meeting room, unlike theirs? What if we have somehow lost this unity of the Spirit, rather than obeying the clear injunction in Scripture to keep it? What now? What are we still doing that is destroying it? Are we denying the importance of this oneness and sacrificing it in the name of what works, of what's done? Is it our fault? Can we do anything? The purpose of this booklet is to remind readers of the importance of New Testament verses about our daily, lived-out unity with all Christians, rather than just the ones we see Sunday morning. That unity comes from the Holy Spirit. It cannot be achieved or maintained through human efforts, even in the areas of assembly administration and careful Bible study. We can't keep it without God the Holy Spirit's help and our openness to that help. We can't get there simply by following the direction of our leaders. That's been tried. In 1882, William Kelly, writing for Bible Treasury, stressed the importance of the unity of the Spirit by writing, The unity of the Spirit is a constant responsibility for the children of God to keep with diligence as long as they are upon the earth. He abides with us forever. To keep it, therefore, is always a paramount duty. In 1897, A.H. Rule said something very similar when he wrote, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. This is a simple exhortation, a thing to be carried out in connection with the state of all lowliness and meekness with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. To keep the unity of the Spirit is not an impossibility. It is possible by the grace of God. Let it not be said that this unity cannot be kept can. If you read through the New Testament epistles, you find that the apostles are very concerned with the new Christians getting along, working together, and relating to one another. Relationship is a vital part of the New Testament scriptures. If two women named Eudia and Sintichi working for the Lord at Philippi were known to be squabbling, the Apostle Paul thought it was important enough and that it was perfectly appropriate to address them by name in the epistle he wrote to that assembly. He took the work they did very seriously, having worked with them himself, and felt that the work was threatened by their not being united. So he also asked the whole assembly to help them work together. He did not identify which of the two was right and command everyone to side with her, bowing to his apostolic decision. Grace to Unite Christians So, unity is important. Relationship and it comes from the Holy Spirit. But what exactly brings about and maintains unity in Christian groups? The 19th century brethren who spent their entire lives teaching and evangelizing and helping out in the various meetings looked to the Holy Spirit to make it possible for them to achieve and maintain this unity in grace. Let's look at some more of what they believed and taught and how they understood the scriptures. One thing the early Brethren writers speak of a lot is not Christians who are known to an assembly or gathered there, but instead what they referred to as godly Christians, 
Christians who, regardless of what church they might regularly attend, are known to be decent, upright, Bible-believing, God-seeking people. Their godliness was judged by a different yardstick than merely where they showed up Sunday mornings. Another key word early brethren writers use a great deal is receive or reception. They're talking about letting someone break bread and participate in meetings, receiving or accepting them as fellow Christians, to not treat them as lesser or different nor under suspicion until they prove themselves in some way, for instance, by quitting the Christian group they're currently associated with, declaring loyalty to our group only, and saying we were right as to all of our administrative decisions in the past. The word receive that those brethren writers were used to seeing in the King James and Darby translation is translated welcome in the ESV. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with each other in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. John Nelson Darby writes here about the importance of grace and love in creating and maintaining unity, and says separation from evil isn't the central thing that should define or unite our group. He writes that, The active part it gathers is always grace, love. Separation from evil may be called for, but this in itself is never a gathering power. Power to gather is in grace, in love working, If you please, faith working by love in Galatians 5 verse 6. Besides, grace alone fully reveals God, and hence, without grace, that to which we are to be gathered is not manifested. The early Brethren writers took doctrinal correctness very, very seriously. But even John Nelson Darby didn't see it as a gathering power like the grace of the Holy Spirit is. He pointed out that when we don't bother to keep the unity of the Spirit, we lose the enjoyment of the peace that comes with it to make it possible. Then we have no peace, and we miss out on being connected to and one with the other members of the body in our area. We are no longer members of the body so much as only members of a small Christian organization called The Meeting. The early brethren wrote that we are gathered by and to a good rather than against evil or error of some kind. This is where our identity was supposed to come from, the good, what we have to offer other people. Too often, Christians have attempted to define their unity by uniting against Christians they disagree with about something. In fact, this is what defines all the Christian sects that exist today, and also the ones which have faded away over the centuries. Normally, a Christian sect is a group that takes pride in being distinct from, rather than united with, other Christian groups because it has reformed, or is free, or is new, or has the Holy Spirit working in power, Acts 2 style, or understands the Bible better than other groups, or some other such thing. Some churches even claim to be unlike the other churches because unlike them, they are a united church or that they are the whole or Catholic church, or in the case of the brethren groups, that they aren't a church at all, but are instead the only correct practical demonstration of the church that exists today on planet Earth. The early brethren didn't want to be just another Christian sect or church defining itself by being separate from and superior to the rest of the body in the community. So, welcoming godly believers, even those still connected with some other church fellowship, was what the early brethren did. 
They differentiated themselves from other communities of Christians mainly by keeping no membership lists and welcoming to the Lord's table all godly Christians, regardless of church affiliation. They did not require new Christians to prove they had a full understanding of the principles of gathering, nor did they make godly Christians wait for a period of time before they would eventually be welcomed to participate on Sundays. The early brethren were afraid to behave any other way, fearing they'd become yet another Christian sect or just a church if they did. And it's not like any community needs yet another new church to further split us all up. The whole reason for the brethren from the various churches getting together to break bread and studying the Bible and pray for each other was to unite with the Christians in the different churches, not just to form a new one. The idea was to completely ignore the church walls that supposedly separated everyone and come together anyway. A beautiful thought. A.H. Rule wrote that, It has been the custom of those gathered to the Lord's name from the first to receive at the Lord's table known godly souls who were in sound doctrine and upright in walk, even though still connected with some system. And this without raising the question of their breaking bread with such system. They love the Lord, are sound in the fundamental doctrines of Christianity, are godly in their walk, perhaps more so than many who have correct views of ecclesiastical truths. And they recognize that the table at which we break bread is the Lord's table, though they may think the same of other tables which are sectarian. The Lord has received them, and he appreciates, if we do not, their desire to remember him. Why should we raise a barrier to such? Why exclude them, or at least make the conditions so hard that they cannot participate without being rude? I fear there is at the one assembly too hard a front on this line of things, raising barriers which place the meeting almost on sectarian ground. In 1903, Walter Potter said very much the same thing, writing that, It would surely not be of the Lord to require of a godly, exercised soul connected with any of the, what we may call, orthodox denominations, that he sever his connection with his church before we allow him to participate with us at the table. And to do this, it seems to me, is to practically deny the ground upon which we are gathered. J.N. Darby wrote in 1869 that The question is, as to the reception of saints who partake of the table of the Lord with us, whether any can be admitted who are not formally and regularly amongst us. Suppose a person known to be godly and sound in faith, who has not left some ecclesiastical system, nay, thinks scriptures favor an ordained ministry, but is glad when the occasion occurs. Suppose we alone are in the place or he is not in connection with any other body in the place, staying with a brother or the like, is he to be excluded because he is of some system as to which his conscience is not enlightened, nay, which he may think more right? He is a godly member of the body, known such. Is he to be shut out? If so, the degree of the light is the title to communion and the unity of the body is denied by the assembly which refuses him. The principle of meeting as members of Christ walking in godliness is given up. Agreement with us is made the rule, and the assembly becomes a sect with its members like any other. They meet on their principles, Baptist or other, you on yours, and if they do not belong to you formally as such, you do not let them in. 
The principle of brethren's meetings is gone, and another sect is made, say, with more light, and that is all. The idea of being in fellowship or gathered with any one group was utterly foreign to the early brethren's understanding of scriptural gathering. These are expressions they simply did not use. Yet this concept, which constitutes membership at a Christian sect before it will allow you to participate, is precisely what many of us grew up being taught was normal, proper, scriptural, and traditional. Why? Falsifying the Testimony of Christ in the Assembly What would it mean to falsify the testimony of Christ in an assembly? What would make our claims to be gathered by the Holy Spirit in the name of the Lord only, and not to a human group, nothing more than lies, manifestly untrue? Once again, John Nelson Darby was strongly against the idea that assembly should ever have a membership in the form of who was gathered with a group or not gathered with a certain group of Christians, didn't think in terms of who was in fellowship and who was out of fellowship. To him, talking that way would have been an admission that he was merely attending a Christian sect like any other, that their claims to be something other than a church would be clearly false. Having membership with you was evidence that you were something other than members of Christ's church, Darby felt. Darby wrote, When persons break bread, they are in the only fellowship I know, owned members of the body of Christ. The moment you make another full fellowship, you make people members of your assembly, and the whole principle of meeting is falsified. William Kelly, writing in 1882, described the practice of turning godly members of Christ's body away from the Lord's table as a work of Satan, attempting to undermine the testimony of Christ to create a sect instead. Allowing known believers to break bread while still identified with another church fellowship was at one time commonplace practice for brethren like Darby and Kelly, but it's not something we see today in the closed groups even ones which claim to be gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and who wish to be seen as something other than just another church with a membership. Because today, we do have a membership just like any other church. We know who is a member of our fellowship as opposed to merely a member of the body of Christ, and in our minds, the two are not at all the same thing. And we know that most of the members of the body of Christ aren't people who are members of our group, and we don't mind much. After looking at what Mr. Darby and others a century ago believed, and seeing so little of it practiced today, you have to ask, why the change? What would these men have written about us today? Wouldn't they have seen modern brethren groups as sects, as just other church groups? Some will suggest that Mr. Darby had changed his mind on all of this later in life, but when asked about this very thing, he said, I have never changed my views at all. C.H. McIntosh writes about the reason we need to properly understand and act according to Scripture in all of this so that we do not become a sect, saying that The celebration of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper should be the distinct expression of the unity of all believers, and not merely of the unity of a certain number gathered on certain principles which distinguish them from others. If there be any term of communion proposed, save the all-important one of faith in the atonement of Christ, and a walk consistent with that faith, the table becomes a table of a sect, and possesses no claim upon the hearts of the faithful. And furthermore, 
If by sitting at the table I must identify myself with any one thing, whether it be principle or practice, not enjoined in scripture as a term of communion, there also the table becomes the table of a sect. The fact that being saved welcomes us into the body of Christ through the efforts of the Holy Spirit, rather than simply gathering us to a single Christian group, is written about in 1 Corinthians, where it says, For just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. What we do versus what we claim. Are the views of the early Brethren writers important? Should we pay them any attention? Do we have a different view of the scriptures than they did? Were they naive? Are we as willing to give up all human connections and concerns to follow the scriptures as they were? We have to be careful that our practice of reception is not just something we say we believe, but don't actually do. That it not be an empty form, the official position, something we only pay lip service to. We need to be willing to live it. We will be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ one day, not only on what we claim, but on what we do. If we ignore the central principles of Scripture, we will find ourselves following only the more recent traditions of men rather than the Word of God, finding also that we have ceased being any sort of testimony to the unity of the body of Christ. We may even be quite comfortable or happy being divided from the rest of the body of Christ. It may make us feel like we're stricter and more doctrinally correct than they are. That stuff makes the flesh feel very good about itself. We have to listen to God about this one. We have to pay attention to where our choices and those of the people who went before us have landed us. Are we glorifying God? Are we a testament to Christian unity? Do we recognize that there is one body and one church? Here's Romans 15 again. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you, for the glory of God. Do we welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed us? How do we glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Not just by correcting error and judging evil, but by welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us. We don't want serious errors to be taught or to support people in living lawless lives and being careless about sin. Other scriptures clearly teach about that. But the point of this scripture in Romans is that welcoming everyone Christ welcomes glorifies the loving God and Father of all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we doing it? Are we welcoming them? Correcting error and judging evil aren't even mentioned here, only the importance of welcoming other Christians just as Christ does, even if we disagree with them about various things and have trouble getting along. We're supposed to look for the divine harmony possible only through our openness to the Holy Spirit, rather than justifying disunity by pointing out that we can't, as natural human beings, agree and get along, and then, like Adam and Eve, trying to blame the disharmony on the other person. It's not natural for all Christians to get along and maintain workable connections to one another and support one another through life. We're just human beings. We need the Holy Spirit for that. 
God the Holy Spirit makes our most inarticulate ramblings understandable both to God the Father and to other human beings. He is who made the harmony seen in the book of Acts possible. It wasn't just that the apostles were better human beings than we are. They disagreed and had to go their separate ways and work separately. But as a body of Christians, they maintained a unity that we don't attempt nowadays. We think being all split up and mainly dealing only with Christians in our group is normal. And it is. But God wants more than normal from us. Q&A with Early Brethren Writers here are some reasons frequently given why an assembly might not welcome or receive known godly visiting Christians from participating in the meetings, including partaking of bread and wine. Number one, some will think that a believer associated with any other Christian group is ecclesiastically defiled, church dirtied, or contaminated by them, and must break from those other believers first before we can welcome him or her. The idea is that we're keeping our group free from the contamination these people might bring in with them through their promiscuous association with other Christian groups which are clearly less sterile than our own. About this, A.H. Rule said, Our habit has been to receive a godly Baptist or Presbyterian and the like, but where the avowed creed of a sect involves wickedness, bad fundamental doctrine, or unmoral conduct, a person still connected with such would not be received. He must sever his connection with a position in which he supports such a creed before being received. This view disagrees directly with the action of any assembly that would refuse godly Baptist or Presbyterian believers on the grounds that they are defiled because of not being gathered with us and apt to contaminate any assembly that accepts them. Number two, some feel that what we've been talking about is only what open brethren practice today, and it is therefore wrong, as we separated from their error a century ago. A.H. Rule addressed the idea that this is an open brethren error by writing, Nor is this the ground taken by the so-called open brethren. Some of their assemblies throw the door open to all Christians, especially to all professedly separate from system, and some are absolutely exclusive and refuse to receive anyone who does not first break with system. They, at least many of them, would break bread with us if we would receive them, showing they are ignorant of the principles of the one body and the unity of the Spirit. Number three, others believe that what we've been talking about was always wrong, and brethren have gradually learned, over the years, the error and danger inherent in it, despite it being practiced erroneously during the early days of the brethren by people like Darby and Kelly. In 1882, toward the end of the first generation of the brethren movement, William Kelly plainly showed that the idea of rejecting Christians from other groups was being talked about in their day, and that brethren were fighting against it because they saw this as an error. As far as closed groups are concerned, the fighting against it eventually stopped. Kelly wrote that, For a long time, Satan has been endeavoring to falsify the testimony of Christ among those professedly gathered to his name. One of his wiles has been, under the pretense of light and righteousness, to undermine grace and truth and recognizing freely the members of Christ's body. Utterly misconceiving the stand against neutrality, they would make no Christian welcome to the Lord's table who did not judge his old position by more or less intelligence of the one body and one spirit, that is, 
without a virtual pledge never again to enter the so-called church or chapel. This is, to my mind, not unbelief only, but a bad and base principle. It is an underhand way to make a sect of those that know the church, but really to prove how little they themselves appreciate the one body, else they would not let knowledge override relationship to Christ as they do. Number five. Some feel that a person coming to meeting needs to be instructed first in order to avoid defiling the assembly with his ignorance. Some groups have a seat of the unlearned section in the back for ignorant Christians to sit in for a few weeks or months or years until it is felt that they have reached an understanding that our group is the only right one and are sufficiently instructed about the truth of separation from evil. It is felt that separating from evil is so poorly understood by the church in general that we closed brethren are the only ones getting it right, and so we need to give lessons. A.H. Rule addressed this idea by writing that making someone wait as ignorant or unlearned would be equivalent to telling her that her participation in the ordinance was not desired by the meeting. And, of course, anyone of a sensitive disposition would, under the circumstances, refrain. Such a course of handling would, it seems to me, quite unfit any such one to participate in that joyous and holy feast to the edification of his or her soul. And William Kelly argued strongly against making a requirement of what he calls ecclesiastical intelligence, also saying that doing so results in the formation of a sect instead of relying on the Spirit to unite us. He wrote that, Far from looking for or valuing ecclesiastical intelligence, before souls take their place at the Lord's table, it is quite a mistake for us to expect it. The moment the church lays down an extra scriptural test, she takes the place of the Lord, and there is practical assumption, yea, virtual denial of his authority. The result is to form a sect and departure from the unity of the Spirit. Number six. Some feel that a person who wants to break bread but does not want to ask to be allowed into fellowship with our group is not calling on the Lord out of a pure heart, but is clearly insincere in some way, is a tourist, voyeur, or creeper of some sort. That not asking to join us is proof that you're weird. As to this idea that only occasionally visiting an exclusive fellowship and wanting to participate but not wanting to join it is weird, suspicious behavior, Mr. Darby wrote, There is no difference between breaking bread as a Christian and fellowship, though some may not always be there, because the only fellowship or membership is of the body of Christ. And if the person breaks bread and is thus recognized as a member of the body of Christ, he is subject to all the discipline of the house. I may not enforce constant attendance with us only, because he may come with the desire to show unity of the spirit, and yet think that his ways are more orderly, conscientiously. If his heart be pure, in 2 Timothy 2, I have no reason to exclude him, but if anything in his path require he should be excluded, he is liable to it like anyone else. If it was ignorance, and they came bona fide in the spirit of unity to that which is the symbol of unity, I should not reject them because they had not in fact broken with it. Many closed groups seem to be failing to welcome all godly Christians unless they first choose the correct side in past complicated, nasty divisions. 
This seems to be about gathering against other Christians rather than looking to find unity with them through the Holy Spirit. Nowadays, when closed brethren groups seem to be having just as many divisions as ever, it's the other Christian groups who seem to have a real desire for unity among Christians. Other churches trade pastors and teachers or join together for evangelical efforts and fellowship. Often the closed brethren groups are the main ones that abstain from all this. If I go to a vineyard or Baptist or Pentecostal or Free Methodist church, I am going to be accepted as a sincere Christian, and I will be allowed to participate in what goes on there. Closed brethren groups don't work like that anymore. Mr. Darby wrote that he would not fellowship with an assembly which behaved in this way, arguing that this practice would have turned that assembly into a sect, saying, If any assembly refuse a person known to be a Christian and blameless, because he was not of the assembly, I should not go. I own no membership but of Christ. An assembly composed of such of its members is at once a sect. He also wrote, Remember, you are acting as representing the whole church of God. And if you depart from a right path as to the principle of meeting, separating from it is to be a local sect on your own principles. Both Darby and Kelly use the term falsify when talking about closed fellowship. Falsify is a strong word. Mr. Darby went even further than that, though. In one of his articles on the subject of fellowship, Mr. Darby argues that the concept of seeking the interests of any one particular group, rather than the unity of all, actually makes one an enemy of the work of the Spirit of God. True unity is the unity of the Spirit, and it must be wrought by the operation of the Spirit. He is an enemy to the work of the Spirit of God who seeks the interest of any particular denomination. And those who believe in the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ ought carefully to keep from such a spirit. But this is our spirit, and we think it's normal. It's what all the other churches do, kind of, right? Every church for itself. Further on in the same article, Darby calls this attitude a mental disease and seeking their own rather than the things of the Lord. This is a most subtle and prevailing mental disease. He followeth not us, even when men are really Christians. Let the people of God see if they be not hindering the manifestation of the church by this spirit. Christians are little aware how this prevails in their minds, how they seek their own and not the things of Jesus Christ, and how it drives up the springs of grace and spiritual communion how it precludes that order to which blessing is attached, the gathering together in the Lord's name. Continuing in the same article, Darby wrote that any group of Christians that did not practically, really embrace all the children of God would be unable to find fullness of blessing, saying, No meeting which is not freedom to embrace all the children of God in the full basis of the kingdom of the Son can find the fullness of blessing, because it does not contemplate it, because its faith does not embrace it. So, a meeting which does not reach out to all the children of God doesn't have a faith which reaches out to God for full blessing? Some would say this is too extreme. But can we honestly expect anything other than a lack of fullness of blessing if we carry on in this way, looking after only our own people, living for our own meeting's convenience, and to stick to what works and what's always been done? Closed fellowship hasn't always been done. 
And it doesn't work. It doesn't create or maintain a testimony of unity. There is no growth seen in it. It doesn't connect the Christians in a community. It doesn't embrace everyone God does. It tries to have higher standards for welcome than he does. In another place, Mr. Darby argued that failing to receive all godly Christians means the assembly no longer has any ground upon which to turn away or discipline ungodly ones. He argues that closed fellowship invalidates any and all assembly decisions, including ones which attempt to deal with evil. He writes that the assembly commits error on the one side, destroying the unity, because of trying to avoid the opposite extreme, allowing looseness in practice or doctrine, writing, I seek no looseness, but Satan is busy to lead us to one side or the other, to destroy the largeness of the unity of the body, or to make it mere looseness in practice or doctrine. We must not fall into one in avoiding the other. Reception of all true saints is what gives its force to the exclusion of those walking loosely. If I exclude all who walk godly as well, who do not follow with us, it loses its force, for those who are godly are shut out too. Continuing in the same letter, Mr. Darby also stresses that we are meant to be members not of our own body of brethren, nor of any assembly of it, but only of Christ's body, saying, There is no membership of brethren. Membership of an assembly is unknown to Scripture. It is members of Christ's body. If people must be all of you, it is practically memberships of your body. The Lord keep us from it. That is simply dissenting ground. I should, if I came to your assembly, require clear evidence what ground you are meeting upon. There are now a huge number of unaffiliated brethren groups, with each group accepting members into its own body. So brethren, whose very origin was to stand against sectarianism, have degenerated into an endless assortment of micro-sects. Contrast this with 1 Corinthians, where the Apostle writes... For in the first place, when you are come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. From the way that is stated, it is plain that the divisions in that day did not involve different groups of Christians meeting separately, each not welcoming other godly Christians. These were divisions among, in the middle of, the group, rather than fully separated groups having lost the unity of the spirit to a degree the people of the town would notice. These Christians are in the same group, associated with each other, but broken into cliques. And the apostle was displeased with this. It is obvious that the New Testament church in Jerusalem, with its thousands of individual Christians, could never have met in a single room, yet they were always referred to as a single group, same as the churches in Rome, Corinth, and every other place mentioned in the New Testament. God recognized no division between godly Christians other than distance. 
Yet today, like all the churches we condemn, Brethren Assemblies separate ourselves from all other Christians to maintain the purity of our own group, refusing to so much as allow other Christians to eat at what we claim is the Lord's table, even when we know that these outsiders are godly members of the body of Christ. And we remain content with ourselves and our practice and feel we're being very traditional and rooted in both the scriptures and the practices of the early brethren. Let's have another look at what the early brethren wrote. Mr. McIntosh wrote that, If once for all it be asked what means the term approved, it may be answered. It is in the first place to be personally true to the Lord in the act of breaking bread, and in the next place to shake off all schism and take our stand firmly and decidedly upon the broad principles which will embrace all the members of the flock of Christ. We are not only to be careful that we ourselves are walking in the purity of heart and life before the Lord, but also that the table of which we partake has nothing connected with it that could at all act as a barrier to the unity of the church. Interesting to note in this excerpt that Mr. McIntosh takes allowing disunity into a group every bit as seriously as many others would take allowing bad doctrine or unrepentant ongoing sexual sin into it. Who God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. Are there two kinds of Christians, kosher and regular, sterile and contagious? Our responsibility is to receive everyone who Christ has received, in this way giving glory to God. If Christ receives someone and sends them to us, how we treat them is pretty important. Will we try to be stricter than God himself? This principle is also presented in Acts 10 by God himself speaking to Peter, whose now outdated Jewish traditions had to be corrected by a direct word from the heavens. Before this, Peter had been unable to feel right about bringing the gospel of salvation to the Gentile Cornelius, with whom Peter once would not have even eaten a meal, let alone worshipped. But God needed the gospel message taken to Cornelius. To fix this problem, God sends a vision of a number of animals lowered down to Peter, kosher and unclean ones, and tells Peter to eat them. In the vision, at first Peter protests that he's eaten kosher all his life, so wouldn't want to contaminate his body by eating something common or unclean, something not kosher. Peter needed to learn not to call what God has made clean common or unclean. In God, we are all kosher. Only after this lesson is Peter sent to give to Cornelius a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Peter is now able to say about Gentile people, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Baptism, the first Christian ordinance, is for all believers and was not to be forbidden or withheld when there was clear evidence of salvation. It is no different with the Lord's Supper. Nowhere in Scripture is it mentioned that the local group of New Testament believers would require a Christian to wait or to sit back when they knew that person was a serious Christian. They were to be welcomed in the name of Christ. It wasn't even any different in the case of Saul of Tarsus, who'd been persecuting the early Christians shortly before that. It is an insult to the cleansing power of the precious blood of Christ to treat sincere Christians as unclean or common, as lesser, as unlearned, as beneath us, as suspect. 
it is completely inappropriate to require them to sit back in a special section and to wait while we decide to our own satisfaction that they are clean, so as to somehow protect the purity Christ died to give us. Mr. Darby taught that the assembly needs no lengthy or deep inquiry into a professed Christian sincerity, but should be satisfied with the testimony of a person or two, writing, The assembly has to be satisfied as to the persons, but as so receiving to break bread is supposed to be satisfied on the testimony of the persons introducing them, who is responsible to the assembly in this respect. This, or two or three visiting, is to me the question of inadequate testimony to the conscience of the assembly. Nobody comes in but as a believer. As we saw before, early brethren rejected the concept of there being some godly Christians who were in fellowship with an assembly and other godly Christians who were not in fellowship with it. To them, this unscriptural distinction was sectarian and nothing but a thinly veiled way of making membership with a specific group of believers a requirement before true Christians would be given access to their own breaking of bread service. The architects of division seem to need to make this kosher, common distinction, though, excluding any Christian, godly or otherwise, informed or ignorant, coming from any other Christian group besides their own sect. They insist on maintaining a visible but unwritten church membership, requiring the exclusion of even godly Christians who aren't listed. They apply this exclusion to Christians who hold doctrines significantly different from their own, of course, but they also apply it to Christians who believe the same things they do, but who prayerfully disagree about some stupid internal squabble that happened a hundred years ago. If a person not in fellowship presents himself at a brethren sect of this sort, whether or not they are living well is seldom considered. The only thing that generally counts for fellowship is whether or not the person in question takes their side and is therefore gathered with their sect. Wherever this practice is going on, it should be obvious to everyone that the principle of gathering in the Lord's name rather than to a human organization or sect, as held and practiced by the brethren in the 1800s, has been entirely abandoned. Wherever the practice of excluding known godly believers is commonplace, the question should be asked, on what grounds do you guys gather anyway? What spirit is it that brings you together and unifies you? What is your real motive for gathering deep down? Are you genuinely one, connected with strong relationship ties? Is there open, honest, loving Christian communication between you that shows us you are united? Are you maintaining the unity of the Spirit in grace and love? Will you stay that way? Also, how much unity and how many human relationships are you willing to sacrifice in order to win in petty disputes over who is right or who gets more power, status, or say? These disputes happen almost every generation, and they all spring from an inability to get along, and they demonstrate a lack of that grace and love that is asked for by Scripture. The list of works of the flesh seen in the Bible right above the fruit of the Spirit contains a damning description of exactly the sort of attitudes that cause these divisions. Divisions are the work of the flesh, and not obedience to the Scriptures or of being inspired by the Holy Spirit. They are godless. There is no right way to divide. It is assembly divorce. It's a mess, with no winner and no right side, and the children suffer most of all. Many brethren people whom I personally know will unthinkingly eat with other Christians who aren't members of their group. But then, usually, they wouldn't welcome that person to participate Sunday morning due to what seem like purely bureaucratic reasons. 
How does that work exactly? Afterward, it seems that what's going on is that the responsibility to judge and deal with evil is being given a much higher place among brethren than the responsibility to welcome and receive the people Christ has already received. The normal, healthy practice of dealing with the church as a whole has been given up in favor of only dealing with people willing to join us. And if there is anything required to be accepted among us other than being a real Christian who is keeping evil out of his or her life, the assembly becomes a group that meets based on everyone agreeing with us. We all know that our salvation isn't based on our works or on our doctrines. We know we aren't saved based on our own ability to please God or man, yet we seem to want to accept or turn away people based on how pleased we decide we are with them, with their apparent level of pleasing God. We seem to want to make it a more complicated and difficult thing to be received by us than by God himself. Maybe that needs to change. What we really hope is that this pamphlet will be helpful and not cause arguments and bad feelings. The ideas in it may need to be thought about for some time. But maybe we could start to value unity as something that matters to God just as much as avoidance of and separation from evil. The two should balance. Maybe we can get help from the Holy Spirit as he reveals to us the scriptures and the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ about all of this. Jim's story. The most interesting thing for me about Henry's pamphlet was Jim Morris's bottomless collection of snippets of early brethren speaking out against the one right place doctrine and where we find ourselves today. Jim is nothing if not obsessive about details. I wasn't surprised to find that behind this huge collection of quotes is a huge story. As a result of his Bible reading and studying of the early brethren, Jim got driven out of his meeting for being what my father would call an SH disturber. My father firmly believes in letting his yay be yay and his nay be nay, but letting his sh be sh so as not to swear by anything or let a foul communication pass his lips. This is why he would refer to someone like Jim Morris or himself in those terms. Jim was trying to contrast our claims with our actions. I got Jim to tell me all about it in writing, and he gave me permission to use it all here. I think I will say what ought to go without saying, that the Christian men into whose care young Jim Morris was expected to put his conscience and spiritual journey proved more than willing to do whatever it took to maintain the status quo state of their system, regardless of anything at all, regardless of what the stated published views of the early brethren who had set up the system to begin with had been, regardless of the fact that Jim was sincerely trying to get to the bottom of important stuff because of the fact that he was placing God and the Bible and the original Brethren writers above the current system. They were willing to try to simply get rid of Jim, fly in the face of all tradition, Brethren teaching and advertised protocols of the meeting, all to quiet a fiery young guy who was reading the things Darby and Kelly and others had written, as well as the Bible itself. Here is what Jim wrote. The only evidence the meeting can offer that they are the place that the Lord has chosen to set his name there is that they are the original group of brethren. But the only evidence they can offer for this claim is their claim that they are the only brethren group that still holds all the doctrines of that original group. But as this has now been proven false, 
The claim that they are the only place is conclusively proven to rest upon a false foundation. In short, it is founded upon a lie. The fact that it is founded on a lie shows the truly satanic origin of this doctrine. But we now need to see further evidence of the satanic effect this doctrine has upon those who hold it. Here we need to again look at a portion of the last letter of JND that was examined in my letter of October 22nd, 1980. In his article about how to recognize the work of the enemy, Mr. Darby said, This remarkable lack of even a common worldly conscience was abundantly manifested in the action taken against me. I have already pointed out that every attempt any of them made to prove I was quoting the original brethren out of context was itself lifted out of context and not only lifted out of context, but lifted out of that context so violently as to make it appear that the quoted writer was saying the very opposite of what he actually said, and this was done in such an obvious manner as to prove intellectual dishonesty, if not willful dishonesty. But this was only the tip of the iceberg, as it were. In my twenties, I had begun reading the writings of the original Plymouth Brethren in depth, and the more I read, the more disturbed I had become. In my early thirties, I had finally prepared a card catalogue of literally hundreds of quotations from these writings that directly contradicted doctrine currently being taught in the meeting. In 1977, I had moved to the neighborhood of Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, and began remembering the Lord in the assembly there. Shortly after arriving in Cuyahoga Falls, I showed my card catalog to every brother who was considered an elder in that assembly. When this produced no reaction, I began showing it to anyone willing to look at it, and a few became deeply concerned. But then some began to imply that I was lifting things out of context. So I began Xeroxing entire articles from the old books and giving them to anyone who would read them. This went on for well over a year. But then, one evening, I was sitting alone in the meeting room and suddenly heard a roar above my head. I turned to see a white-headed man towering over me, shaking his finger in my face and literally shouting, I am an elder in the assembly of God, and you must obey me. No more articles. This was far more serious than a simple outpouring of the flesh. It was a false pretension to have absolute authority in the assembly of God. This is the basic and central sin of the clergy nor could it be excused because of my supposed youth. At this time, I was 35 years old, significantly older than David was when God made him king over all Israel, than John the Baptist was when God sent him to reprove Israel, and older than our Lord Jesus when he began his public ministry. We must remember that although he was God, he was also a man and did nothing that was unsuitable for a man to do. When he was eight years old, he heard the teachers and asked them questions. But when he was thirty, he thundered out publicly against the evil of the religious leaders. I simply ignored this order of a self-proclaimed elder. A little while later, he demanded that I put my views in writing so they could be evaluated. I again ignored this demand until it had been joined by every person that was considered an elder in that assembly. And even then I did not do so until one of them recognized that they had to go by what I meant and not by what could be made of my words. Then I wrote as follows. November 27th, 1979 Dear Brethren, 
There has been a serious misunderstanding among us for some months. I have objected to certain ideas held among us and to certain things we have done. Your answers to my objections reveal that you still do not understand what I have objected to. This letter is my attempt to clear up this misunderstanding. I most certainly hold that the assembly is responsible to put out evil. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 13 I most certainly hold that the assembly is responsible to try those that present themselves for fellowship. 2 Timothy verses 19 through 21 I most certainly hold that the assembly must exercise care in this. If this were not so, the instruction of 2 Timothy verses 19 through 21 would be pointless. I hold separation from evil to be a foundation assembly truth. I could not recognize an assembly that denied this doctrine. Now your objections to what I have said have all centered around the need for separation from evil. I have never denied this. I hold separation from evil to be vital. My objections have sounded like I was denying this principle. They have sounded like this because I have maintained that it is wrong to exclude some that we have been excluding. I do not deny this principle in the least. What I do deny is that we have the right to define evil as we please. The Word of God tells us what is evil. We have no right whatsoever to condemn what the Word of God does not condemn. We further have no right at all to exclude someone if there is nothing in his life that the Word of God excludes. This is plainly taught in Romans 14 verses 1 through 15 and in the 1 Corinthians 12 verses 21 to 25. Now the unity that we have been called to is the unity of the body of Christ. Romans 12 verses 4 and 5. This body is composed of all Christians. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 27 with chapter 1 verse 2. Those that are evil are excluded by the Lord's own command from the privileges of membership. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 12. But to exclude those that the Lord himself has not excluded is schism, and there should be no schism in the body. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25. But further, Ephesians 4 insists at length that there is one body. Verse 4. Now, brethren, we know that the one body is the body of Christ, and that it is composed of all true Christians. That is the one body. That is the body that our Lord has established. That is the body that he has decreed is not to be divided. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 10 through 13 and chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. We also know that we, that is our particular group, the meeting as we call it, are not that body. What we have forgotten is that if our little group separates itself from the body of Christ, it has divided that body. This is serious, brethren. There is no secondary matter. To separate ourselves from the body of Christ is to practice schism. If we separate ourselves from that body, we become nothing but another sect. There is no escape from this necessary conclusion. A sect is any Christian group that separates itself from the body of Christ. Now, if we deny that we separate ourselves from that body, I will simply answer, do we... Or do we not divide all Christians into one of two groups, we and them? If in our hearts we consider our meeting as something separate from and distinct from the body of Christ, then we have the spirit of schism. If in practice we do not recognize godly Christians until they have been admitted to our company, 
We are practicing schism. But beloved, if in doctrine we justify this practice, we are a full-fledged sect. Sincerely, Jim Morris. I attach to this letter twelve entire articles from the writings of J. N. Darby and William Kelly, all of which strongly insisted on the same things I had said in my letter. I numbered these articles with Roman numerals, stating as I gave them the package that this was to make it easier to reference them as we discussed what they said. Something like two months later, one of them called me late in the afternoon and demanded that I appear at a meeting less than three hours later. I came to the meeting to find these three brethren, plus a fourth man a little older than myself. Instead of a meeting that was at least civil, as I expected, they attacked me on the following sentence from my letter. What we have forgotten is that if our little group separates itself from the body of Christ, it has divided that body. They insisted that the body of Christ could not be divided, and that in these words I had denied the truth of the one body. The evil of this characterization of this sentence is obvious from the rest of the letter, for I had repeatedly insisted on this very doctrine. But the evil of their stance was even worse than the evil of their misrepresentation of my words. The scriptures do not say that the body of Christ cannot be divided. If the body could not be divided, the instruction that there should be no schism in the body would be pointless. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 25 after making this false claim, these brethren said, This is very serious, and declared, That is so wrong, the rest of it could not be right, and flatly refused to even discuss any of the rest of my letter or any of the articles I had attached to it. One of them even went to the sinful extreme of saying that if anyone ceased to be a member of the body, he would no longer be a Christian. So I had actually denied eternal security. They then demanded that I agree to cease and desist from speaking of this to anyone until we could meet again to discuss this further. I agreed to this and kept my promise, but they simply used this as an excuse to muzzle me for the next six months. Sometime during this period, their main leader admitted to me in private that he knew they were resting my words, but he defended his actions by saying that my words could not be taken that way and continued to make the accusation. Then, after six months, they did as they had done before, calling me late in the afternoon and demanding that I appear at a meeting only two or three hours later. This meeting was attended by the same three elder brethren plus a man my own age. It was opened without prayer by a startling statement by the elder that had started this whole affair by declaring that I must obey his order to stop circulation articles and who had been their spokesman at the previous meeting. He said, We will not listen to anything you have to say about this, and we will not look at any scripture you want to refer to. They then again pressed their demand that I cease and desist from speaking about this to anyone. I finally asked them if I should obey them when they told me to disobey the word of God. They answered, When we have told you what you are to do, you have no right to apply your interpretation of the word of God to it. These two statements plainly showed the spirit that was at work. These are not the words of godly pastors attempting to defend the sheep. These are the words of usurpers, rebels who set their own authority above that of the word of God. To yield to such would have been a sin. 
When I told them my conscience would not allow me to stop, they asked me if I would again agree to stop until we could meet again. I answered, No, you took unfair advantage the last time I agreed to this. So they answered, Then we'll have to take this up with the brethren, and you're going to have to be absent from the first meeting. I answered, Very well. But I would remind you that the word of God forbids the assembly to judge me without hearing me. They answered, That's right. And we promise you that you will be given the opportunity to try to convince the brethren that you are right about this. In keeping with this agreement, I stayed away from the meeting in which they first brought their charges against me. But they broke their side of this covenant. This was neither error nor oversight. It was done intentionally and in blatant disregard of the covenant. The younger brother who had been present testified about the covenant the leaders have made with me. But this was wholly disregarded. It continued to be disregarded even when I pled with the brethren at length about Joshua's ill-advised covenant with the Gibeonites. Joshua 9, verses 1 through 15. And the Lord's severe judgment on Israel because Saul broke the covenant 400 years later. 2 Samuel 21, verse 1. I also pled with them at length about the scripture that explicitly says, If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. Deuteronomy 19, verses 16 and 17. They knew that my accusers were accusing me of misrepresenting what the early brethren taught, and they knew I denied it. This was the context of the promise that I would be given the opportunity to try to convince the brethren that I was right. But all these pleas were to no avail. The only excuse given for this evil was that such a hearing would cause a division. This was nothing more than a covert admission that they knew I could prove what I said. They had seen my proof, and they knew that it was iron-clad. So they opted for a cover-up. In fact, their main leader admitted to his daughter on three different occasions that the reason I could not be allowed to give answer was because they could not answer me. I must sadly report that he maintained this sinful refusal in the face of repeated pleas that I continued to send him for the space of nine years. But why would the fact that they could not answer me mean that there was something they had to cover up? It was not simply that they had to cover up the fact that the early brethren had indeed taught what I had pointed out. It was because they had to cover up the fact that they had completely abandoned the doctrines of the original brethren. The assembly must not be allowed to learn this. And why must they not be allowed to learn this? Because their entire claim to be the one place was based on the claim that they were the only group of brethren that still taught all the doctrines of the original brethren. They called this the doctrine of original ground and revealing this critical truth would indeed destroy their claim to be the one place, and would thus cause a division. The brethren knew this, and that was the reason I could not be allowed to give answer before the assembly. The flagrantly broken covenant remains unfulfilled to this day, almost 32 years later, but the passage of time has not erased their responsibility to keep the covenant. It still stands unfulfilled, and simple righteousness requires that it be fulfilled. They sent me a letter formally commanding me to remain silent in all assembly meetings and to speak of this subject to no one. Every sentence in their letter began with a true statement, but ended with words that changed it into an outright lie. 
A little while later, they did something that was, as far as I knew, totally unparalleled in the entire history of the Brethren movement. They sent three men to my home to pressure me to voluntarily withdraw from fellowship. After I had refused for about three hours, one of them said, You seem to think that one of us is going to stand up and say, Brethren, we have been mistaken, and that the rest will listen to him. Now this just isn't going to happen. I realized that he was telling the truth, and with great sorrow gave them permission to go back and tell the rest that I had withdrawn. Only a short time later, one of the three men they sent to my home was caught in the act of sexually abusing his own daughter. And shortly after that, the elder that had pressed all this went to the extreme wickedness of encouraging my wife to leave me. And one elder in the assembly she went to after she left me also encouraged her in that action. I remained alone for seventeen and a half years before finally remarrying. But now that the one place was no longer in question, the brethren became godly again and excommunicated my wife. Then almost all of the brethren that had silenced me and asked me to leave them came down to court and testified with one voice that I was a godly man. This was simply further proof of the satanic nature of the one-place doctrine. For the very brethren that silenced me for the challenging the one-place doctrine and asked me to separate from themselves over it, overwhelmingly testified to my godliness when that doctrine was no longer involved. I have not told all this to rehash old wounds, nor have I told it to accuse individuals. That would be silly now, for all of the leaders that took part in this action are already with the Lord. Rather, my reason has been to demonstrate the all-pervasive evil that otherwise godly Christians become willing to commit whenever anyone challenges the meeting's claim to be the only place where the Lord is in the midst. For that was the real question at the center of this entire controversy, even though they pretended it was only about the proper way to treat an occasional visitor. Further, the evil manifested in this particular action was not unique. Instead, the evil nature of their actions was typical of what happens whenever and wherever these dear and otherwise godly brethren are challenged on this claim. In most other things, they are some of the most godly Christians I have ever known. But when the one-place doctrine is challenged, all their godliness disappears and they become positively evil, willing to do things that even an ordinary unsaved man would be ashamed to do. This indeed shows the truly evil nature of the one-place doctrine, and thus exposes its satanic origin. This is presented with the prayer that these dear brethren, for I still love them dearly, may yet be delivered from this satanic delusion. The hope of this eventual deliverance is why I continue to press them with their responsibility to fulfill the covenant made by their leaders so many years ago. It sounds very much like Jim Morris was driven away from his Plymouth Brethren Assembly for refusing to stop referring to the writings of the founding fathers of the movement itself. An S.H. disturber indeed. And it sounds like not only his church fellowship, but his marriage was a casualty of this debacle. I know that during the 1991 division, some young guys in Nepean, like Jeff Dodds, were asked to stop bringing any Darby and Kelly books into the brothers' meeting, well, the division planning meetings, as well. The thing about people like Henry, Jim, Jeff, my dad, me, and so many of us is that we're annoying. People want us to just go away because we don't seem to be able to just drop things. And we go too far and say too much. We are grit in the gears. We go on and on and on. We make it awkward for everyone. Why can't we just be content? 
worst yet, we're in naive denial about how little power we all actually have and how little any of our opinions mean to anyone. We don't get that everyone's really only being allowed to speak up if we know they're going to agree. This leaves everyone no other choice but to actually drive away and kick many of us out to make sure it's clear how things work around here, or at least to make sure things continue to work around here. No awkward discussions. When the wheels of punishment and silencing and kicking out start rolling, woe betide anyone who might try in any way to slow that process down a bit. Sects, Lies, and Videotape In some brethren groups, elders are officially appointed, can be removed, and may need to be if they take too much power. TW groups like I was raised in work a bit differently. Jim Morris isn't the only man ever to take on unofficial TW elders. Russell Rule is an SH disturber too. Of that, there can be no doubt. Russell went out to all of his Brooklyn TW Assembly's brothers' meetings. He stayed back after breaking a bread on Sundays and heard the letters getting read aloud as to what the assembly, where he went, had decided to do. Men were mysteriously getting silenced. In TW circles, silenced means the men were being punished with a ban on speaking at Bible studies, preaching the gospel, and taking audible part in worship services and so on. Getting treated the same way they treated women. All manner of surprise decisions were being announced on Sundays. Russell noted that although he'd been at all related meetings, guns were getting jumped. Much that was announced as decided by the assembly had been secret until that very moment when the assembly was informed of what they themselves had supposedly decided. Things that had been argued over with no decision in sight at the last meeting were now magically declared something the assembly had decided. The whole assembly, except the people who didn't agree. TWs are usually more democratic than this. It's not supposed to go like that. Because once something's declared decided, it is never undone or even really discussed afterwards. The decisions are sacrosanct. Russell got very sick of people denying what they themselves had absolutely, positively said in previous administrative meetings, or, in some cases, earlier on in the same meeting. He got tired of people promising to not write letters to other assemblies until people came to an agreement, only to read already drafted decision letters on Sunday anyway. He got tired of people saying they'd speak to someone or would reveal information about something at a future date, only to then refuse to do it, denying having agreed to do any of that to begin with. So even though he knew that the taking of minutes or notes isn't really done in most TW Brothers meetings, Russell did something very odd. What Russell did was start tape recording Brothers meetings and transcribing them when he got home. Not ministry or teaching meetings, brothers' meetings. Power stuff, the really important meetings. And he'd bring in the transcription to the next meeting so he could show people things they'd said but were now denying that anyone had said at all. There it all was, in black and white. Awkward. Some would say that what is done in brothers' meetings is very private and secret, hidden, occult. Tell it not in Gath. Leave the streets of Ashkelon out of it, too. Others would say that the numerous people these decisions affect have a right to know what goes on in them, that if people ever found out how the men behave in these meetings, the men might be shamed into behaving better. 
Russell is clearly of the latter view. He felt the secrecy was being abused, that the concept of discretion was being used as an excuse to wield unquestioned power, wanted what we nowadays call transparency, as opposed to opaqueness and obtuseness. There also seems to have been a problem in the Brooklyn TW group where whenever people on one side of a punishment issue started to speak, people on the other side would just stand up and walk out. When the older guys did this, they'd just come back the next week and ignore what the other side had been saying when they'd walked out. In the case of Russell and his friends, they'd instead pick right back up at whatever incited them to walk out, with a transcript of it in their hand. This walking out thing was being done by both sides, but the punishment yay side was eager to punish the punishment what side for doing it. When Russell and friends did it, it was ungodly and rebellious. When the other side did it, it was divine, righteous indignation, being angry on behalf of God himself. Assembly decisions, brothers' meetings, and so on, are downright holy to us TWs, sacred so much that I was quite superstitious about sharing a transcript of a brother's meeting in my book. Nevertheless, I overcame my superstition and did it anyway. The transcript I included involves Russell Rule and Joe McCrum trying to get the older men to reveal what exactly were the facts behind their announcement, the one being made to the entire assembly Sunday morning after all members have been asked to stay back after non-members and children have left. The announcement was that they, the assembly, would now punish Dennis Ryan by silencing him. Rule and McCrum were about half of the people in the assembly, and therefore felt entitled to ask things like exactly why they were silencing Dennis. Sharing this information reminds me that I was raised to make assembly decisions such an idol that looking with unaverted eyes upon what in any other church group would be recorded officially feels terribly, terribly taboo, like allowing infidel unbelievers in to gaze on our golden boot idol. Makes me uncomfortable, but I think I should do it so we can see exactly what is really going on in these situations. This is an audio book, so I'm going to have to sum up the transcript rather than show it to you like it is in the book. The transcripts show elderly brothers Dubois and Eustace announcing an assembly decision. The assembly has decided, they announce, the silencing of Dennis Ryan for not bowing to an assembly decision. Russell Rule and Joe McCrum, as members of the assembly, ask exactly what assembly decision Dennis is not bowing to, and they are told to be quiet. The fact that Russell and Joe have in the past walked out of meetings in which they were not allowed to be heard is thrown in their faces. In a TW group, assembly decisions are supposedly decided by the assembly, but the simple fact is that men meet beforehand and decide everything, and the meeting held to supposedly decide the matter is nothing more than an announcement of what has happened already. When any form of discussion seems about to start at that point, the announcement is repeated and the thing is immediately brought to a close. This is what happens with Russell and Joe. TWs, not having official leadership, are very big on the biblical directive to be of one mind, to be in agreement. This is supposed to involve relationship, tolerance, submitting to one another, being sensitive to one another's feelings, and waiting until people feel ready to decide something, even if some of the brothers have vaginas and aren't allowed to attend brothers' meetings. But all too often, the one mind thing is most easily accomplished by shutting up all dissenting or questioning voices, like Russell's and Joe McCrum's. Frequently, the claim is made that there's one mind and that the assembly has now made an assembly decision and we can't question it. But often it's really two or three guys doing it. 
they may not even inform the people who assemble to form the actual assembly exactly what's going on, or listen to them, or answer their questions at all. And it's really not supposed to work that way. Now, Russell really took things beyond people's comfort level when he actually brought in a video camera to videotape all of the administrative punishing that was being railroaded through his assembly. He wanted the faces of the people doing it to be visible on the tape so they could not later deny anything about what position they took in the matter, what role they played, or what they said, or if they walked out. Because, as I said, there was a whole lot of walking out and denying all manner of things, and Russell was going to capture it on tape. This is what tends to cause TW divisions. A couple of old guys simply decide upon some administrative punishment beforehand, then announce it as a done deal in the official meeting, and refuse to share information or discuss it with the middle-aged guys. They often have not gone and visited the person in question, despite having told everyone they would. They, at that point, claim to be helpless to do anything at all, but bow to the assembly decision they themselves have just made up out of their own heads. And they punish anyone who does anything but sit silently as letters to be sent on behalf of the assembly are read aloud. Anything else is rebelling against God himself. Now this is not what Darby and Kelly and so on intended. So Russell videoed the disciplinary proceedings in a decade when T.W. Brethren really weren't supposed to even have televisions. Outrageous. I wish I could say that the kinds of stuff Russell was videoing are things I never saw in person myself, but I attended Nepean Brothers meetings leading up to the 1991 division we all invented, and I cannot exaggerate how childish it often got. I really can't. It definitely takes someone like Russell, though, to actually go so far as to bring in a video camera, to not be afraid of acting ridiculous in middle age in order to highlight, italicize, and underline and boldface how ridiculous everything had gotten. So Russell sat there with his video camera in his lap, mostly to record audio, at brothers' meetings and after Lord's Day morning announcements of decisions. After one of the latter, he was mockingly told by Mrs. Dubois, Russell, Russell, why don't you try to take a picture of the Lord Jesus? Try and take his picture, why don't you? In Russell questioning and videoing her husband as he demanded his right for quiet obedience as he read letters silencing and kicking out people, Mrs. Dubois seemed to feel that Russell was opposing the very work of Christ himself, he who could not be captured on video, who was behind all of these assembly decisions to kick out and silence everyone. Russell told Mrs. Dubois he lacked the equipment to do so, but duly took Mrs. Dubois's picture for her. Too often, in our TW groups, the power goes to those who've been there longest. Old godly. One must take into account pedigree and ancestors. One of the brethren patriarchs quoted in Henry's pamphlet is an ancestor of Russell's. And not everyone gets more patient and tolerant and mellow with age. Sometimes it really goes the other way. One thing that seems obvious to me from matters such as these is that human systems often seem willing to utterly subvert the original intentions of their founders and figureheads. I think Darby, Kelly, Rule, McIntosh, Potter, and all the rest were seeking men, discontented with the Anglican Church mostly, looking for something new. The trouble for seeking men is that eventually they decide on things and a system is set up and stays in place for generations, becomes old. They are now the long-dead creators of what is now the status quo. 
gone is the we-are-seeking things mentality, and all is soon run by people of a very we-have-it-together-now attitude. The pervading spirit becomes one of feeling that, in terms of doctrine, we are rich and increased in goods and have need of nothing. Complacent, smug, Laodicean lukewarm. And soon enough, a new generation of seeking men is going to want to tear it apart when they see things not working right, and with questions. Because seekers tend to delve into dark corners. They're not afraid of conflict or change. They go too far and say too much. They question everything. Who knows what they might do? Best to just get rid of them. We don't need them. Now, if only we can agree as to who of us get to count as we, and who doesn't. But back to our story. Brother Dubois is trying to read the Brooklyn Assembly a letter. It announces to neighboring assemblies that they, the Brooklyn Assembly, have made an assembly decision to punish Dennis Ryan for questioning another unspecified assembly decision. The assemblies who receive this letter are to ensure Dennis is silent when visiting them too, or there will be brothers' meetings to pay. The men of the Brooklyn Assembly itself are interrupting and asking questions about when exactly was this assembly decision supposedly made, and why they made it, and who is the we who have made it, as many still don't agree. Can't debate it now, they are told. It's an assembly decision. Can't fight those. Questioning it would be rebellion against God-given authority, and thus God himself. Speaking out at this point is railing. It's basically like a huge game of ecclesiastical, I know you are, but what am I, with some I'm rubber, you're glue tossed in as well. This is how it all too often goes among the gathered saints, with only the names and dates changed over and over and over, and has for over 100 years. Note the claim to be saints gathered to the name of the Lord, rather than to be doing all this in his name, as per Matthew 18 and 20, or on his behalf in any way. Not sure where feeding his lambs would come into all of this. The flock certainly seems to be getting scattered, though. It's hard to even help people follow the basic plot of these shenanigans, especially if, unlike me, they did not grow up following second-hand accounts of brothers' meetings the way regular kids followed football and hockey. I was following brothers' meeting intrigue since well before I could drive. Our house was full of talk of little else. In Brooklyn, shortly after this Russell Gate thing, quite predictably, another letter was read. It announced to the Brooklyn Assembly that there had been another Assembly decision that they, the Brooklyn Assembly, had all made. It had been decided that it would be really for the best if Russell and his friends were no longer part of the Brooklyn Assembly, or in fact, the Brethren Movement worldwide. A sad responsibility, sadly carried out by godly, faithful, elderly men. Those few old men had kicked Russell and Dennis and Joe out, as what my father would call S.H. disturbers, for refusing to bow to assembly decisions the assembly simply could not agree about, let alone decide. It's like a big, odd game of musical chairs, only whoever walks out of the room at a given moment either wins the whole game or loses it. It's all about getting people on your side, with fear and manipulation of scripture. It's about cowing the flock, bullying the sheep, a huge game of ecclesiastical chicken. Russell had gotten the wrong people's goats in this instance. Open brethren, by contrast, officially appoint their elders outright. So in an open group, men like Dubois and Eustace could hold official power that the others would perhaps be in no position to question. Or, depending on the place, people in an open group might be able to remove Dubois and Eustace from eldership appointment if the position was being abused and replace them with someone else. Thank you.
systems seem threatened by seeking. All this stuff about how scary, genuinely open discussion, thinking things out fully and seeking better answers can be, came to mind when I was watching Living in a Material World. It's a documentary about George Harrison of the Beatles, rather than about Madonna, as might be expected. George was the Beatle who seriously got into spiritual seeking. You don't tend to see stuff like that nowadays. You don't see Kanye West or Justin Bieber or Bruno Mars or Nicki Minaj making headlines because of some kind of spiritual seeking or their political or religious views. Kim Kardashian's not breaking the internet by planting her butt in a pew, ashram, or synagogue somewhere. Bruce Jenner's not speaking out about ultimate reality and finding meaning that goes more than plastic surgery deep. Because we're only interested in the outer appearance. We make and earn the celebrities we have. The Beatles, of course, started out as the ultimate boy band, fantasy boyfriends for teenage girls, singing songs about romantic love in its simplest, most adolescent and fresh form. This made them unstoppable in terms of drawing power and earnings. They had the ears of everyone, for money reasons and status. They'd touch the hearts of young people and with them the wallets of their parents. And their ideas weren't coming from a stable of hit writers. They were coming mostly from the Beatles themselves. They had a seemingly bottomless well of inspiration. But like a lot of famous people, once they got enough money, that money stopped being quite the pressing concern it once had been. They no longer needed money so badly, yet it threatened to take over their entire lives. It now involved a whole lot of business and signing things and attending meetings and boardrooms and avoiding enacting and launching lawsuits and counter-lawsuits. So something happened. For many people, one of the most troubling and difficult things that can happen is to attain one's life goal and still have much of one's life yet to live. Like many, before and after him, George Harrison felt it wasn't really all about money and status and fame after all. Once he had it, he felt the need of something more. So what was it really all about? Unsurprisingly for nervous, angry, young British men with chaotic, structureless, crowded lives outside, and intelligence, talent, and unexplored psychological baggage inside, it was about peace and love, apparently about learning to be still and not allow oneself to be jostled. It was about not fighting, not striving, not expending all of one's inner resources. It was not about constant battles with lawyers and each other and critics. It was about being still, opening up, and finding peace, and then spreading peace and acting lovingly and getting love and peace back in return. It was about being quiet in nature. And West met East. The Beatles followed George's leading to connect with Indian religious figures, to be given mantras to get their minds some much-needed peace. Where we brethren folk had verses and amazing grace, they got chants and mantras and Indian music. They used it to detach from the chaotic mess that was their world of pop star obligations and fame and start to be untouched by all of that, to retreat from it and let it all slide past. At first they'd used drugs to try to chase this dream. To perhaps a lesser degree, they continued to use them for some time after the initial interest waned. George Harrison tried LSD and pot to begin with, but increasingly saw that this was no better solution than the old British men around him who simply got drunk all the time. And in my opinion, although the Beatles kind of took tours through Indian religious activities, they'd already been raised to be religious in England, and I don't think they were looking to simply adopt and blindly follow another new religion. They felt that religion wasn't where it's at. I think they wanted to become men who had some wisdom inside, 
who knew how to be themselves without needing rituals and groups and ceremonies any more than they needed drugs. They were more than willing to experiment with mantras and music and rituals and ceremonies, but the Beatles never turned their back on life in England and became full-fledged members of really any religion. They wanted to be inspired, but not added to a membership list. These were just pop stars, yet society was clearly quite threatened and fascinated, first by what they saw as religious fervor in Beatles fans, and then by the individual Beatles themselves wanting to search for deeper meaning. It was the 60s. People were all talking about the modern Western world being unhealthy, modern folks having gotten important things all wrong, and everyone needing to search out new avenues for living. The Beatles were no different. In my own culture, I always felt like though it was the 80s and 90s, somehow the brethren were still staving off the 1960s a generation later. The same feeling of being threatened by outside or new ideas. The same paranoia about change and individuality. It felt like the 1960s were trying to get into our meeting halls. It seemed like they were right outside our frosted windows. I'm sure in the 1920s, no brethren person would ever have felt that an interesting mustache, beard, or goatee was rebellious, worldly, and unacceptably counterculture. In the 1950s and 60s, suddenly they were. And lengths of hair that were very ordinary for the 1600s, 1700s, and 1800s became suddenly totally unacceptable for men. And oddly, for young women too in many cases, as hippie girls often had long hair. So brethren girls had shorter hair. Decent young brethren people were clean-shaven, and girls as well as guys had short, obsessively tidy hairstyles in reaction against what was going on in the world around. They were believers rather than questioners, and followers rather than deconstructionists. So a generation later, that's still what was going on in our culture, apart from long hair being more or less mandatory for girls again. Nobody hassled old women with short hair, of course, but short hair was mandatory for males of all ages. But more threatening to our religious culture even than the fashion of the time was any form of seeking. Seeking is always seen as subversive because it signals dissatisfaction with what is currently being provided. All the Beatles had to do to upset people was look for new answers. After all, what was wrong with the old ones? Wasn't the act of seeking really a shouted comment on established thought being somehow lacking? Were the Beatles too good for your grandfather's best answers? What made them think they could just go around dismissing the thinking that had served Britain so well through two world wars? In the documentary, I saw John Lennon, not George so much, being badgered by reporters, lights going off in his face while he snapped at them when asked to explain his comments about the Beatles being better known, more recognizable across the world than Jesus Christ at that point in their careers, something that was simply a fact self-explanatory, something Lennon had to deal with emotionally and decide what to think about, something as troubling and difficult as it was lucrative. This reminded me of being a brethren young person with brethren counterculture friends and being continually badgered by people who felt like you always owed them an explanation about absolutely anything they heard you might possibly have ever said or done. Because said thing, true or false, had supposedly troubled, upset, or worried them people who'd built entire lives out of getting upset, demanding that you play the opposite role to their affronted, decent person. Why weren't you content? What was wrong with what we already had? And why did you have a beard? What kind of testimony was that? Were you a hippie or something? Were you smoking the pot, too? Taking the LDS? 
To be at all interested in any new thinking or ways to view life or the Bible or the world or the self was taken as an attack on the status quo. It also wasn't safe to be disinterested in meeting stuff. It certainly wasn't safe to be restless and discontented. And my brethren, friends, and I were definitely all of those things. So we kept getting our own little press conferences in which people badgered us to give an account of ourselves. My friends and I were not the Beatles, but I identified with them a bit while watching this footage when I saw precisely what it was that would, and how little it took to, cause people to accuse them of upsetting people. When people heard of celebrities like George Harrison seeking answers, they got upset. When Harrison discovered and appreciated something that seemed very foreign and exotic, it really didn't help, especially something un-British, non-white, non-black even. But what really upset them was when he did things like My Sweet Lord, in which he expresses appreciation for Southern Baptist gospel music. Because when one of them tries to love or enjoy something of ours, we get very upset. What right does he have to love our stuff? That's our stuff. And the worst thing about what he did with that song? He combines in one song authentic gospel ideas, including the lyrical and musical themes. And when he puts them with the Indian equivalent, they sound very much the same. He connects them. He doesn't take a side. And you've got to, right? Take a side for Jesus against Satan? And Ravi Shankar, and now by extension George Harrison, are emissaries of Satan, aren't they? In that song and others, Harrison shows that the the wanting to open up, to find love and be loved, to stop being controlled by people and daily nonsense, to stop needing in return to try to control everything, is a vital, universal human struggle. And that upsets people, Because our stuff has to be the good stuff, and their stuff has to be misleading, dangerous stuff our children must avoid. But this is supposed to be about love, isn't it? Searching for truth, learning how to be human really well, learning what purpose can be found in life and what is higher, greater, and above the everyday. When I say that the Beatles wanted a serene kind of quiet peace and love, given what their lives were, it makes me think back to what I needed at that age, what I was looking for. Like with all things me, the answer is double and contradictory. As to my culture, like the Beatles, I needed some distance, some quiet, some freedom from obligations, some peace, needed to stop being the focus of so many judgmental people's attention, didn't want notoriety just for trying to live a life that worked for me. I needed to detach from it all and learn to be myself in my own head and heart and life without being bothered by the brethren equivalent of nosy reporters and outraged parents. And that was starting to happen fairly naturally. The more I tried to meet God in my own way, rather than letting the church culture fill in for him, the more this started to happen all by itself. But as to the world outside my culture, I needed what the Beatles had already achieved by the time they'd reached my age. I needed connection, a career, work, new experiences, new people, noise, music, involvement, travel, chaos, passion, a voice. And this was going to take a lot of doing. And I was never going to be the Beatles. No one was. So I seemed to find myself taking part in a grand experiment. To the people of my culture, my life trajectory looked like something they felt they had seen all too many times before. Something that never ended well. A crash landing in the making. And perhaps I was simply doing what so many had done before. And yes, my faith and my chance of living a sensible life were at stake. My membership in my birth culture was hanging by a thread. Threats of severing that thread and bringing the sort of brethren down upon my wayward Damocles' head were implicit but palpable. Imminent, it turned out. 
what it was like for me was meeting Jesus in a realer way than I ever had, overcoming a culture seemingly full of blind followers following blind leaders, and having him very solemnly but warmly hand me that white stone with a name and identity for me written on it, an identity no one but he and I knew, an identity I now had to figure out how to live amid throngs of people prophesying doom as to this life path, this odd course they didn't understand and could not control. My church culture had always taught us that we had to come out from the world around us to find God, out from 20th century human society and culture, and that then, a remnant within a remnant, we had to come out from what the other Christians were doing in their churches and draw aside from all of that stuff to find God in a deeper, less human way outside the camp. I had grown up that way. Oddly, I found that I myself had to then come out from my church culture to find God, and that where God then sent me was not to church, but into the world into which he'd ensured I'd been born, connecting to the people around, even if they weren't from my church, even if they weren't Christians, even if I wasn't out preaching at them. People he'd made, people he loved. I was supposed to connect, to love, to understand, to relate to, to work with. So I didn't literally leave my church then, but I came out from it in terms of the isolationist thinking, tried to outgrow the need to control, the fear of the unfamiliar, and the unthinking arrogance. And timidly, I walked in the world, in this age, in our society, and tried to connect with it without buying into any of what was clearly crap and without being eaten alive by it either. And so my friends and I were quite identifiable as a counterculture movement within the larger Brethren culture. Rather than merely rebels fleeing it or skiving off behind the meeting hall to enjoy a quiet smoke before sitting right back up there playing Brethren, we were reading books and coming up with our own views on the stuff said in meeting. We had questions about Christian liberty, about grace, and about how to live for God. And we were getting all of that from the Bible mostly. We'd approach old men and ask them things to see if we could agree with their views on it at all anymore, and often we'd find we could not, and that they were frequently unable to carry on any sort of genuine conversations with us. All too often, they were parroting things they'd heard from men long dead, and all they had for us was a trite pre-war saying of some kind. After they delivered that, they couldn't carry on any more discussion, and we needed to continue the conversation with someone. So they had to walk away from us. Heaven forfend they listen and grow to understand us. We were on an odd journey. And the consensus was that we were sinners and fools, irresponsible, bohemian upstarts causing trouble when there was enough trouble already. Leaving We were people who found ourselves very much at odds with our church culture. We were in a church which had trained us from birth that there were no other legitimate churches for us to go to. For people like us, there were just as many hard choices to make as to where to go as there were reasons to be unhappy where we were. A word about what it meant to leave or be out in my culture. Out didn't just mean you would be asked to sit in the back and not take communion if you ever attended our services again, though it certainly meant that. It also meant that if you ever wanted back in, you'd have to formally request this, meet with elders from our group, and explain yourself and the reason for your error, your abject remorse over same, and undergo examination as to your life, habits, and associations now. In my case, 
This is what I'd have had to do in order to maybe regain what I'd committed to at age 12. I had this stripped from me for my 28th birthday. Being out meant that in the case of men, you were no longer allowed to make comments or ask questions if you attended official Bible studies, reading meetings, and so on at meeting. You were not allowed to attend Bible conferences and other social events at all. You were not allowed to evangelize publicly on behalf of the meeting, as to gospel meetings, Sunday school activities, or the like. No one was really supposed to date you. What you had always seen as your Christian life was now pretty much over. Of course, in the case of women, you had never been allowed to do most of those things to begin with. So just the no communion thing, the being banned from social events and the mandatory sitting in the back. Well, also no cooking or baking or cleaning for said social events either. If you had been sweeping the hall's floors each week, if you got kicked out, you'd have to stop doing that special task. Being out bought you sudden, terrifying freedom to do whatever you liked, no longer living in fear of punishment. My sister clearly remembers being out and repeatedly rebuffing pressure from old women to come back in. She remembers a kindly old soul who had once been her Sunday school teacher taking her out for lunch to try to convince her to come back. She can still hear the woman gritting her teeth and graciously snarling in frustration, I don't see why you can't just put your hat on your head and just sit there. I'm not feeling it would have been thought a completely nonsensical response to that comment. And... I don't believe God wants me to do that would have been fighting words. Reasons There were many reasons one might grow up in, but eventually end up out, of our group. For one thing, many of us developed niggling, nagging conscience qualms with what was being taught and done there. We couldn't just accept stuff anymore. Our own ethics got in the way. Some people, pretty much only women of course, gradually developed a problem with how subjugated women had to agree to be. With others of us, it was the exclusivity and dividing of the body of Christ that we no longer wanted to help perpetuate. We got to a place where we decided that upon reading the Bible, we didn't feel it was right to divorce the other Christians in the body of Christ and refuse to worship with them or have them worship with us. You wanted to worship with other Christians even if they went to other groups? In a culture such as mine, an attitude like that was fatal. You were going to get church cooties all over everyone if you mixed. And so, if you went ahead and associated with another group of Christians and their social and worship activities much, you would soon be barred from those of your own church culture. You'd be cut off to avoid the spread of that ecclesiastical contagion to keep the dirty and clean dishes separate, sanctified. Other people had never really liked church stuff all that much to begin with growing up. So, as they moved away from home and started their adult lives, to word it how brethren people tend to, they wandered off, they strayed, they got cold in their souls, lost whatever interest they once had, and stopped coming out Sunday, often to never really end up at another church either, maybe only very sporadically. From where we were sitting, it was like they just slowly faded from sight and were no more. We took it as sad evidence of the fact that they'd never been real, serious, prayerful, Bible-obedient Christians like us to begin with. Of course, we still saw them at the grocery stores and gas stations. It was awkward. And they seemed unrepentant and happy, too. 
Some young people were keen to drink and party and have fun, and so were simply waiting for their brethren consciences and childhood training to wear off so they could be free. They grew up a bit, they got up their nerve, and off they went to live the dream. And not hearing the indoctrinating lectures every week, they drank and partied and had fun with less and less guilt. Some ended up being pretty normal-seeming worldly people, eventually. But many took partying way too far, did it like they had something to prove, because maybe they did, ended up in rehab, in jail, or dead. Some repented of this lifestyle, once they'd done it enough to find it hollow, and came back, said they'd been very, very wrong, asked back in, and spent the rest of their brethren lives pestering any young people who looked tempted to go party or do anything that even looked like partying. Lectures were given if they ran into you uptown, and your t-shirt said party on it over a Ninja Turtle smiling face. Such a bad testimony. I know a number of people who, the first time they had sex without having gotten married, wrote a letter officially informing our group of this, often in vague but unmistakable language, so as to get put out. It was an exit strategy. I know of more than one young lady who, once out, then declined repeated invitations to appear alone before three male elders to discuss exactly what she'd done as a precursor to getting back in. Of course, I also know of some who went through that particular gauntlet of shame, had a nice chat with the old dudes about what exactly they'd done, said they were very, very sorry, and got back in. Some even married the guy in question, so as to be able to get back in without cutting off sexual relations with said guy. Most of those rushed, pressured young marriages did not last very long, it must be reported, though there were often children involved. Others wanted more compelling church services and more freedom as to contemporary Christian stuff, wanted a worship team with instruments and PowerPoint and gripping guest speakers, wanted production value, wanted facial expressions to be part of their Sundays. So they went off to other churches or started their own. Often they informed our group, with its supposed lack of membership, that they were going somewhere else, which was a lot like a breakup. At that point, they were certainly removed from our supposedly non-existent membership list, even if they didn't break up with us in writing. If they were fooling around with another church, we considered them out, and they were then not allowed to take communion with us, would have to sit in the back if they showed up, had to be silent during discussions, even if they were adult males, couldn't bring squares to social events in the case of the women, because they weren't members anymore. And usually, they were related by blood and or by marriage to half of the people who stayed. Often this caused arguments at family get-togethers at Easter, Thanksgiving, and Christmas if they continued to get together at all. The conversation would keep coming back to if they were coming back, and, and if not, why not? How could they be happy at a table of men when we had the Lord in our midst? A few in our group wanted to be more active evangelists and wanted the church to support, both in terms of finances and also promotion, their missions work. Some went off to much more outreach-focused groups and were much happier to be kept busy doing Christian stuff they had a passion for. Because our group certainly wasn't as missional, not even close, to being a realified wordle constructification, as some wanted it to be. Some people just needed more to do than sit and listen five times a week. Some people needed Jesus to be about more than just attending meetings. 
Some people, like Ruth, longed for all the ancient, traditional ritual we lacked. They keenly felt our lack of stone buildings, stained glass, incense, organ music, Latin, choirs, and robes. They wanted Lent, creeds, candles, and special celebrations and the like. And we didn't even acknowledge Christmas or Easter at meeting. So some went off to other churches and threw themselves into those guilty, sensual, man-pleasing indulgences, and once again lost their membership with us. Anne sums up her own reasons for not being happy in our church culture quite eloquently. I think my strongest feeling was feeling aesthetically turned off by the lifestyle. The wardrobe, the rituals, the mindset, none of it was appealing philosophically or visually or experientially. I didn't like having my Sunday chopped up, having to keep changing back into a skirt. I found it ridiculous that people switched languages when they prayed or were at meeting. It was dumb to not be able to travel if you weren't going to be somewhere with a local affiliated group on a Sunday. Giving out tracts was weird and a drag. Trying to get school friends to come to meeting was awkward. Explaining to them that they needed to wear a skirt or a mantilla even worse. Dealing with the guilt if you didn't witness the people, it, it just tore me up inside to the point where I had to come to some sort of resolution because it just felt bad. I needed to find a belief system that wasn't so bifurcated. One of the things that I keep finding weird each time is that people leave or get kicked out in their late teens or early 20s, and I talk to them 20 or 30 years later, and they're only just starting to think about the whole thing, just starting to have epiphanies that maybe the men who were in power or the rules or what was going on wasn't ideal, because they've been unthinkingly assuming that they themselves couldn't cut it in the system all these years without ever thinking that maybe the game was rigged. A year or two, I could see, but while many urge us to move on and get over it and forget about it, my own view, on the other hand, is that we need to deal with it, to work things out, to learn what we can about ourselves, our roots, and our experience before ties were severed. Otherwise, that stuff will be repeated, will fester, will eat away at people who are carefully not thinking about it. I hear... What good does it do to talk about this negative stuff? How could it be uplifting and edifying? I hear that coming from a lot of people. My contention is that it always does harm to avoid epiphanies that are headed your way. Not wanting to leave. I was one of the ones who had no intention of leaving whatsoever. This despite deep differences of opinion with those preaching as to how Christians ought to live and behave. My concerns about legalism and grace-earning, about shame-based competitive piety, only grew and grew. Thing is, though, I felt as if there was one thing that the church as a whole didn't need, and it was this. Yet another Christian, thinking he can do better, turning his back on his group of Christians and wandering off, to try to find Christians he likes better, people he can love more easily, who respect him more, who agree with him about more things, who don't require him to understand as many differences of opinion, maybe even to set up yet another Christian group that would then have very little to do with all the other Christian groups near it, to join with a few other Christians who are united in not wanting to be connected with all the other Christians very much, going off to form a union of disunity, find some Christians to sit with and avoid the rest of us together thinking that the smaller the group, the writer or more cutting edge it must be. Ever notice there are always more and more and more groups every year? 
and that people actually present this as a really good thing, seeing how many Christian churches can be planted in cities already filled to bursting with empty Christian churches, and that most of the groups grow smaller and smaller and smaller after an initial swelling up. You'd almost think the Christian population of the world is being systematically diluted, dissipated. I didn't want to help the church as a whole be any more divided than it was. I didn't want to be a divider and subdivider of Christ's flock, so I had no intention to leave ever. But I found attending was sapping me spiritually. It deeply troubled me each time. It sickened me, tore me in half inside. It was faking Christianity for me to play along. It was toxic. I could not be happy. I couldn't even be cold and blank eventually there. And they kicked me out. When you get kicked out instead of leaving on your own, it's more like getting forcibly divorced than it is like moving out from your parents' place. You've been rejected as a Christian person, as anyone spiritual. You are judged a bad human being whose evil has to be kept from rubbing off on everyone else, on the decent people, the serious Christians who actually listen to God. You are a contagion. There was no single big reason for their actions in kicking me out. I wasn't a drunkard or a fornicator or an adulterer. My doctrine wasn't that weird. They used something I wrote as a pretense, having asked me to show up to supposedly talk about my attendance. They said my parody of their awkwardly titled outreach pamphlet, Child Indoctrination Thingy, was a dishonor to the name of the Lord. They said they were acting to protect his interests, that they weren't upset with me, but that he was. They wouldn't let me apologize to them. They refused to believe I'd apologize to him, or if I had, that he had any forgiveness or mercy or understanding about this obvious slight to him whatsoever. Really, I think it was just that I didn't seem like us anymore. Not to them. I wasn't placidly enjoying what they were shoveling into us all. I had an attitude and a mouth. I had life and liberty in me. I had dissatisfaction and conscience and seeking. And it wasn't just me, of course. Many more people left and were kicked out than stayed. Most left or were kicked out. The Lord's things had been trying to stop the thinking and attitudes of people like me from spreading for decades. It was a wolfish culling of the herd, a kind of mini-global holocaust. They had a division to try to amputate and cauterize the troublingly ungangrenous leg, lest that kind of thing spread to the rest of the group. Too much life was springing up amid all the repression, duty, and shame. So right there, they cut off 60% of their group locally, with a big focus upon the young, the thinking folks, and the passionate. They labeled us all wicked and told us we were no longer at the Lord's table, no matter what we did or where we went on Sunday mornings. They told us they did all of it because they had to, because they loved us and loved Jesus and had a heart for his people. It needed no more justification than eating a bowl of steaming Quaker's oatmeal. It was just the right thing to do. Some People's Stories Like me, but before I was born, Elizabeth was kicked out when she had no intention of leaving. She was supplementing her brethren's social schedule by practicing with a ladies' singing group, though. She knew that joining groups and clubs was forbidden. It was being unequally yoked with unbelievers. Elizabeth writes, 
Dave and I got kicked out of fellowship. I got kicked out for joining the Sweet Adelines and Dave for joining the Barbershoppers. We lived in a small town outside of Toronto and went into the meeting every Sunday to Toronto. I didn't have any other outside interests. We didn't go to movies, we didn't drink, so we didn't go to bars. Dave went golfing a couple of times a year. He would have been put out of fellowship had he joined a golf club, though. Our children were five and seven years old at the time. Donald remembers a lot of it, but Carolyn doesn't remember it at all. The overseers stopped Dave after the meeting one Sunday morning and said they would like to meet with him. Dave wanted to know what was on the agenda, but they wouldn't tell him. A few days later, one phoned and said it was because of his singing group. At this stage, they didn't know I was in one as well. Dave made an appointment finally with them and went to the hall to meet them. They told him if he didn't leave the singing group, they would withdraw from him. Dave's attitude was, where do I sign? Of course, his father was an overseer in it over in Scotland, one who thought very highly of himself, I might add. They wanted to see me because they had to treat both as individuals. Dave said, definitely not. You have caused enough grief for our family. Then they were getting out their diaries to make another appointment with Dave. Dave said, no, it is over. All of this took place over about eight months. I could not believe they would do this. But then I thought, if it isn't a singing group this week, what will it be next week? I started going to the local Baptist church and put the children in Sunday school. We have had a much happier life than we would have had serving the Lord with them. They sent us this letter that said we were heretics. As soon as I saw that, I thought, these people are crazy. I had been very upset, but after I saw that, I dried my eyes. I vowed I would not bring my children up in a negative atmosphere. It was all very difficult because all of my family, including both sets of grandparents, were overseers and leaders. When they were alive, people got saved and came into fellowship. After they died, their watchword was, Occupy till I come. That meant doing ineffective things like preaching to a lamppost beside a huge bank of snow in the middle of January, holding many pink teas for the saints, etc. Thus endeth the lesson. About this, Dan, originally from the Renton Exclusive Brethren in Australia, writes, This is why it's of utmost importance to have our salvation, faith, trust, and personal link in Christ, and not place it in any particular church group we may go to. Renton Exclusive said to us when we were leaving, You belong to the brethren, as in, You belong to our group of brethren, as if faith and salvation should be placed with the group. I responded, no, I belong to Christ, which was met with silence. The only way I can describe the general feeling about our new Christian life after 2011 was like awakening from a long hibernation in a dark cave. I'm sure Plato could relate. As near as I can tell, Renton's fall about halfway between T.W.'s and Taylor Hale's brethren as to strictness and legalism well, maybe about 75% of the way, to being Taylor Hales from being Tunbridge Wells, to be more precise. These things are certainly moving targets. Jacqueline posts on Facebook many years after cutting her Taylor Hales exclusive brethren hair and no longer daily wearing the mandated token of subjection everywhere she goes. 
was glad to wake up this morning and find there was no subjection bow in my hair. Spent a lot of the night dreaming that I was living in the world that still was wearing it. Decades after leaving, Bonnie, from a group that mandated the wearing of scarves rather than subjection bows, and then only to go to meeting, says, I have a reoccurring nightmare that everyone is walking out the door to drive to meeting and I can't find a scarf. I can't tell you how many times I've dreamed about wearing scarves, buying scarves, you name it. The latter is the brethren woman's equivalent of the dreams I have where I'm at work and I'm desperately looking for my missing pants. I'm not sure I can convey to anyone who's never been in a legalistic exclusive system what it's like to leave or be kicked out. It's an odd bond to be in to begin with. And as I said already, having it severed is quite a bit like being divorced against your will. It had been meant to last until death or rapture did bring you together with Christ, but now all that was being sundered, and you would have to stand awkwardly avoiding eye contact in heaven for all eternity over this. Louisa writes, My insides knew I was bound and in chains. I just had no clue where the door was to exit and had no permission to exit. All I saw was walls. I had to get to the point where staying was worse than leaving, with their criticism following me, and with the unknown in the outside Christian world. As I did not leave with the division, I left alone. A few left that meeting over incest, where the brothers of the gal were supported, the gal thrown out in shame, and I saw that they survived leaving which no doubt helped me to contemplate the unthinkable, leaving. Mary says that her parents continued to be a disproportionately unhealthy central concern as to life choices well into her adult life. She writes, If not for my parents and their feelings and image, I'd probably have left five years earlier at least. I did grow beyond it quite a bit, though, once I left. took a few years to not have the guilt come back in spades, but it's virtually gone now. Much more confidence as to my choices and my ability to stand behind them. Jake, though only 20, already says this about an overfocus on pleasing his parents. It isn't a huge part of decisions I make anymore. What changed this for me was making my faith my own, and I think this was fast-tracked because of how strongly I felt against a lot of the things that they believe. I was forced to find it for myself or wind up somewhere else because I couldn't subscribe to a lot of the things that I was taught. How would you grow beyond this a bit? Start by recognizing that it's choking you. Be your own person and start to have a personal relationship with a living God who has a voice and feelings and he wants to interact with you. Stop trying to have a relationship with your parents' set of beliefs and calling it Jesus. Laura says, My parents are really very cool people. The TW thing is this crazy blind spot and has remained my albatross over the years. Even today, I find myself in a love-hate tailspin with all things churchy that eats away at my faith by displacement. Anne says, Unlike you who are still wrestling with your upbringing, I have just walked away from it completely. It was too icky to deal with it. I still talk about it from time to time, but most of the time I just live in a completely different world, one where things are much simpler and more beautiful. When I visit my parents, I have to limit the length of time and also focus on staying connected to my new worldview or else I get depressed. I think that working through the old stuff would strengthen me in the face of their persistent religiosity that I can avoid from a distance. However, I mostly find it so dumb that I can't be bothered. Some people claim they can just walk away from our culture, but for many, the loss of their birth culture and what they think of as their spirituality is keenly felt. 
the disqualification from the dating and gene pool is just the tip of the iceberg there. But if you are out, your chances of marrying someone who is in are pretty much rendered nil. Many of us were kept in line mainly through that fear of being kicked out. Fletcher says, I've been away from that garbage since 89 and I'm still screwed up. Darlene says, When I was excommunicated from the brethren, it was harsh and cruel. I felt thrown away, thrown right out into the world I was taught to stay away from. I felt displaced, didn't know where I belonged. Everything I was used to was ripped right out from under me. Friends I had in the meeting for 17 years suddenly stopped talking to me. I was no longer welcome in their homes. I was told by a leader of the Brethren that in Bible times I would have been stoned. My parents stayed away from me. The rules that kept my family and friends away from me when I was shunned caused a loneliness that resulted in despair. Life felt like it was over, and I was only 17 years. When I returned to meeting, hoping for reconciliation, none was offered. I was forbidden to go to any social gatherings, including young people's meetings. Yet I was told I had to return to the meeting to be back in God's will. Nothing made sense. After 17 years of torment at home and then at meeting, this led me into discouragement and despair. I then turned to another pathway. What choice did I have? Some, like Laura, leave our brethren group only to watch the contagion of legalism spread to what should ostensibly be an open brethren group. Laura says, It's good to be loved. I cling to the only right place baggage and find I am brethren to the core. I hate where we are because they're pushing one right place dogma gospel hall style. But I can't feel comfortable elsewhere, even if they treat us with love, because it's not right enough. But we are wrong here, too. So it seems like a choice between wrong and loved and wrong and hated. A really nice old man named Ray Land once gently objected to my use of the words kicked out, wanting me to say that I was temporarily under discipline. He'd come over and asked me in his assembly in America why I had not partaken of bread and wine that Lord's Day morning, though I was clearly an adult. Was I saved? He expressed polite disbelief at my answer. In his exclusive TW assembly, young people confessed to premarital sex and other such crimes and simply had to sit back Lord's Day morning for a month or so and then were back in. So that was his world. Forgiveness. Openness. My cultural habitat was very different from Mr. Lenz, though we both went to TW assemblies. He really had no idea what went on in various of the other assemblies. This is the case with many in-brethren people. And what was simply my own experience and grim reality for my family and friends pierced to the heart of Mr. Land's view of his culture. To contemplate the idea that we might be tossing people over the side if they didn't fit in and toe the line, though they'd done little of consequence, was something he had to reject as a concept. He believed our culture would only put someone under discipline for a few concrete, easily defined sins as laid out in Scripture fornication, adultery, extortion, drunkenness, rape, stuff on the list right there in the actual Bible, not random other stuff. Mr. Land also simply could not believe that where I'm from, people get kicked out for life, for wholly subjective, not playing well with others' reasons. 
for personality flaws. That assemblies would not only never seek to restore someone, but that they'd actually refuse to meet with the person to discuss his situation even when he asked. But again, it's what we grew up with. But he couldn't believe it. Wouldn't believe it. Because that wasn't fair. And the brethren were terribly fair, weren't we? He'd been coming out to meetings most of his life. Three times as long as I'd been alive, certainly. The idea that for some of us the system not only wasn't fair, but was proving unworkable, troubled him deeply. He had to reject that whole idea. My experience had been different from his. There were always a couple of old people sitting in the back section of our meeting hall on Sunday, and if kids asked why they were back there, often their parents didn't really even know why these people were in the penalty box to perpetuity. In some cases, the best answer we got was, apparently he had a problem personality when he was younger and was quarrelsome when they attended out east. Funny, no one had heard him say a word in recent decades, and he'd come out every week for 20 years so he could sit in the back and not take communion. And he always took his wife and politely left if we were having food after, because they weren't welcome and were never going to be. And then, eventually, people like this died, still shrouded, with that vague cloud of infamy. Often the decision regarding these old-timers had been made by men who were now dead, and no one really wanted to undo that decision. The guys who gave me the hey-ho-heave-ho aren't quite dead yet, but I expect the same grandfathering of their administrative decisions will be done in my case. A guy I used to know years ago, who I'll call Luke, moved to a tiny assembly with only a couple living people left. They were all women, but Luke, so he was instantly in charge of everything, though not 30. Luke started to meet with an old man there who'd been out for 25 years. Luke wanted to know why the old guy was out. Immediately, Luke received a deluge of long-distance phone calls warning him not to meddle in this matter and sarcastically asking him if he thought he knew better than the hey-hos who'd remotely put this guy where he was back before man had walked on the moon. There was also the suggestion that this man was evil and might curse people. Apparently, this man had been known to tell people in authority that God might make his displeasure with their legalistic behavior known. And apparently, bad things had happened to some of these power folks. Certainly, this old guy had managed to live longer than many of his accusers, than all three of the Heho brothers, for example. So several upstanding brethren men had felt like the guy was cursing people and gave Luke dire warnings of this. He wasn't a witch, but they dressed him up like one. But Luke decided to let the men back in anyway, as he seemed like a perfectly ordinary old Christian gentleman. The old man started breaking bread with the mini-assembly again. And nothing happened, besides slightly less tedious Bible discussions, there now being two men talking at them, where there'd been one carrying on the discussion before. Of course, the man's dead now. Natural causes, one presumes. As to leaving, Ruth writes, Just wanted to throw in my two cents worth about what leaving versus being kicked out, which I had feared all my life, meant for me. Leaving, for me, equates to one of those horror stories you read about, with a hiker or a woodsman alone in the woods, trapped by a fallen tree. There is no one to rescue him or hear his cries for help. The only way he is able to free himself is to amputate one of his own limbs. If he does not, he will remain trapped, and he will die slowly of starvation and exposure. If he does escape by mutilating himself, he will run the risk of bleeding out. He will leave a part of himself behind that he will never get back. 
and he will be permanently disfigured and disabled. No one else can make this decision for him. No one else can wield the saw blade. For me, not even the pain of giving birth to my son could compare to the pain of leaving the meeting, but I had to, or die spiritually, emotionally, mentally, all without ever knowing who Jesus is, my brother and friend, not only my Lord and Savior. I know for me personally, being read out and barred from taking communion and officially shunned globally by my birth culture was a deep, traumatic shock, a forcible uprooting that I can't really convey to anyone. I never will be able to explain what it feels like to have that done to you. You don't know who you are anymore for a while once your church has judged you an unperson. Hard to think of yourselves as a Christian at all at first. And you know no one's ever going to date you. I've felt most understood when talking to Orthodox Jews and Sikhs and Muslims who have westernized and stopped following the cultural restrictions their parents raised them under. For me, it was Star Trek VI and going to see live music. For one girl, it was bacon. For another, it was cutting her hair. For some guys, it was not fasting during Ramadan or else drinking a beer while watching hockey. Darlene writes, The meeting told me, I had to be restored to their fellowship to be back in God's will. Yet, when I tried to go back, I was constantly rejected. I get why so many in-people are terrified of ever doing anything that might make them have to go through all this, because I was one of those. For years, I showed up at meeting when it certainly wasn't doing me any spiritual good, mainly to keep my membership open. I wasn't wrong in thinking that once I was out, any opportunity of dating brethren women was over. Any young in-women I've dealt with romantically since have had to keep our connection a secret, and when people have become aware these ladies are talking to me, they have been repeatedly warned about me, and true to their training, they have all heeded that warning and buckered off. A few have married atheists instead of someone like me. Simpler. What atheists tend to say about the meeting seems to be less upsetting than what I do. Mary says that when a young brethren woman is sneaking out the side door, so to speak, I'm the last person she can have on her arm if she wants to get out without notice and start living a life utterly unconnected to the meeting, but stay on good terms with her folks. But even when I'd been kicked out, I wanted back in terribly. Being cut loose was more freedom than I knew how to deal with. So even then, I came out to meetings from time to time. I sat in the back row where non-members and those under discipline had to sit. I asked back in numerous times. I apologized to everyone, in person and in writing, and by telephone. I was told that I would never get back in, no matter what I said or did, so long as my brethren didn't feel they understood me. And they never had. Why couldn't I be quiet and get along? Why must I insist on tearing up the Lord's people? Why must I always be a servant of the enemy? Why was I like this? Why was I me? And they soon stopped returning my calls and letters entirely, which eventually made me lose heart in even sending them anything. The loss of that hope is what gave me the freedom to write stuff like this. It sure wouldn't help soften their hearts toward me. I never would have had the courage to do it so long as that sword was hanging over my head, but they've only got the one coping mechanism strategy, and they've used it, so that's it for them. They pushed the big red button. They're done with me. They're not Taylor Hale's brethren, so I don't have to worry about getting sued by them for telling my story. As I said, in my church culture, far more people have been kicked out or have left than remain in it. It used to be huge. 
Nowadays it's mostly gone, and we out people have all got thoughts and feelings about the whole thing. And we've all got the internet. People tell us to be quiet on Facebook all the time. It's been very hard for many of us, but we're not supposed to talk about that. The people it really upsets are people carefully not dealing with their own feelings about the matter. Because it's also been hard for people who've stayed in, whether they were in favor of or opposed to all of the kicking out. It's difficult all around. There are, in many areas, so few brethren left. Ruth writes, The struggles and sacrifices I am intimate with are the girls for whom staying in meant almost guaranteed lifetime celibacy. Five of the eight girls of the circle with which I am familiar are still single and have no prospects of an eligible meeting guy taking an interest in them. There are so few choices inside the circle of acceptable brethren guys that a single failed dating relationship is often the death of hopes and dreams for a marriage and a family. Someone like me, who found happiness with a guy outside the brethren circle, is therefore a pariah, shunned not just for leaving the meeting, but for having a successful marriage outside the brethren paradigm. Anne adds... I think there is compromise in being in a very small meeting that is not vibrant and is overloaded with old people who aren't that exciting or fun. Young people stay out of loyalty to those people and wish they could be part of something that was more fun or fulfilling. What I want today. Today, I want something impossible. I don't just want back in with the one Christian group. I want to break bread or take communion with the local Christians in general, the ones who kicked me out, the ones who kicked them out, the ones who left and formed a different group because they disapproved of all of the kicking out, the ones who left and formed a group that would be more free, the ones who left and formed a group that would take the Bible more seriously and judge evil more faithfully. I want to break bread again with my mom and dad, with my uncles, with people with whom I grew up with new brethren friends, with random Christian people I make a connection to locally and on the internet, with all of them, despite the fact that they prefer to be shattered the way they are. They will not meet with each other as they worship separately on purpose. I don't want to help divide the body, but each one wants me to take a side. Which church do you go to? Am I of Paul or am I of Apollos? Worse yet, do I want to arrogantly claim to be part of the only group really truly taking Christ's side in the dividing? I feel like I am not forgiven for this refusal to declare an allegiance, but I refuse to declare one, and I remain a free-range Christian to this day. I do not join churches. I do not let any single one of them monopolize my schedule. I do not sign agreements to keep church rules, and I will continue to take communion with any people I recognize as sincere Christians. I attend a church only occasionally, though I spend as much time as I can with Christians outside of that context. This latter thing is hard to swing with a lot of locals because I know many, many Christians who only hang out with Christians for 10 minutes after church at their church, and that's their fill of Christians for the week. I want to actually come together with other Christians and connect in love and affection and brotherhood rather than duty. I don't want it to be a sacrifice for God. But how do you get around Hebrews 10.25, I am asked over and over again. How do you deal with the clear instruction in Scripture not to forsake the coming together with other Christians? 
I come together with Christians all the time, I reply annoyingly. I spend an awful lot of money on gas, phone bills, internet, and plane tickets, I continue. I spend an awful lot in pubs and diners and coffee shops where I've met them to have a genuine talk away from the big church show. And I get no response. Because that doesn't count. I'm not reporting to a church on Sunday morning most often. And we pay for heaven in church attendance, apparently. It is, Dallas Willard says, a sin management system. It's how we declare allegiance on the most basic level. It's how we indicate who we think is right. Anything we do outside of a scheduled, posted, official church event is secular, while anything posted on a church schedule is sacred. I don't see it like that. I know a lot of Christians don't. Not really. Yet many say I'm in clear disobedience to the scripture by not declaring an allegiance, for always looking to come together with Christians a few at a time outside of church activities, but not forming a new Christian group. I do it anyway. In inexplicable disobedience to solemn scriptures, apparently. Scriptures like Hebrews 10.25. I am forsaking coming together with other Christians, I'm told. Thing is, right from the start, whenever I wanted to talk about and work on all this problematic stuff, especially with other people who'd been through similar experiences, hurried, desperate feet have always rushed in to shut down all such talk. After all, it was tearing down the Lord's people to talk about things like this. Also, people like me looking for what I'm looking for get so sad that some of you are such bitter haters. What difficult lives you're choosing to live. Why can't you just get over yourselves and just love Jesus with the rest of us? We rejoice in him 24-7. Move on. Find a church and be a good Christian. Help there if you can. What good are you doing with all of this? You must have done something. They kicked you out, didn't they? Why can't you just give them what they want from you and set things right? Why are you being so stubborn and holding on to the past? Well, I'm very glad indeed that you don't go to our church. We're very happy where I go, and we plan to keep it that way. None of that seems terribly helpful to any of us, the majority of Christians. It is the best-kept secret in Christendom that it is the minority and not the majority of Christians who regularly attend, are heavily involved in, and benefit from the formalized, accredited, tax-exempt Western concept of church. It's like in a high school. There are a few students who are involved in or who enjoy the efforts of Students' Council and their theme days and pep rallies and so on, but only a few, maybe 5% to judge by how many people wear blue on Wear Blue Day. And the thing is, the more students who opt out of this stuff and find it meaningless, boring, or annoying, the more defiantly and triumphantly will exude the perky few who are into it. It's all the cooler to be the only ones with any school spirit. So sad that no one else has any but them. Thing is, half of human beings are introverts. Students' council and churches seem to only have stuff for extroverts, for group people. In fact, they seem challenged by individualism, intellectualism, and those who like quiet and solitude or talking to people one at a time and not being required to present what was said or done to anyone. People who do not see the benefits of being supervised or facilitated or even scheduled. As I see the efforts of students' council at schools where I work, it makes me think of church. Perky people being perky. Driving away the less perky with their pointy, shrill, grating enthusiasm, like nails on a chalkboard to many of us. 
thoughtlessly into getting large groups of people to exhibit some kind of nebulous, uniform, synchronized togetherness, because they think that's what heaven's like, like high school musical and glee rolled into one. But people keep asking us, why do you have to dwell on the past? Why do you have to take your own allegedly negative experiences and keep going on about them? Why do you think it's all right to feel so sorry for yourself? Church is hell for us, too. But what you do is you man up and you show up with a smile and you sing. Anne was out once she admitted she was having physical relations with her boyfriend. And she didn't want back in. She writes, I have spent so little time thinking about this. Getting put in discipline did wound me, though. There are things that happen that trigger the memory of being labeled as bad and put away. And it is extremely painful to contemplate. At the time, I was kind of tough, like I didn't care that they put me out. It's stupid, but it did hurt. Other things have happened since, where I was misunderstood or offended people, and then they turned against me, and it felt the same as it did when I was put out. I don't speak up to defend myself. I feel like I deserve it. I remember getting grilled by three brothers in a small Sunday school classroom, and they were asking me how many times I had sex with my boyfriend. And I just thought it was ridiculous and bizarre that they needed to know that. I felt embarrassed for them, and I think they were embarrassed too. She has dealt with leaving behind her missionary's kid background by avoiding Christians altogether. She says, I purposefully avoid Christians most of the time. I recall with amusement an incident where my husband and I were shopping at a garage sale, and some young women in skirts came down the street and approached us with pamphlets. I responded, probably with a little too much enthusiasm. No, thanks. I just escaped from a religion. Part of me hoped I'd planted a seed, but probably they just prayed for me a lot. Sad to say I didn't think of praying for them. Where is the good in discussing it? So again, why address the unpopular topic of legalism and try to trace what a path out of it might look like? Why bother to learn anything from and about it at all? Why not just stop thinking about it altogether? One thing that is important to know is that I, comparatively speaking, have it pretty good as far as negative brethren experiences go. I've spoken to people with genuinely bad brethren experiences. This gives me some idea about people who desperately need out of their toxic situations far more than I ever did. Many of them have, often due to upbringing, even less clue than I did about how to get free and find Christ or even the bus station. Bad experiences of church are not rare, isolated cases. As I said, in my group, we kicked out and drove away more people than we kept. Many, many churches planted in optimism end up crash-landing fairly heavily, and kids involved in them have their worlds shattered by the experience sometimes, especially if their parents and family were very involved. And many of those disappointed, kicked out, and driven away people can't just smile and sing in another church's choir the following week. They have been messed over but good. A disturbingly high number have had to deal with rape and molestation they were forbidden to talk about, often by men in power. If you head even slightly right of my own brethren group, you have it a whole lot worse than I ever did if you leave, thereby demonstrating your disloyalty. In any number of stricter brethren groups, you don't have to simply sit in the back and not take communion if you come out on Sunday morning, if you get into trouble. 
you do not come out Sunday morning because you can't come onto the property anymore. There are a number of brethren groups which practice extreme isolationism, called separation, which involves cutting that person off from even casual daily interaction, even with family. There are brethren groups which encourage wives to divorce kicked-out husbands for the sake of the children. And there are people who not only get kicked out and get divorced by their spouses, but have to fight to see their own children who are taught to dread seeing them. Because legalism is all about control and does not shrink from splitting up what God has joined together. It is very vengeful. Every day, my Facebook feed fills up with people from Canada, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, and America who saw their own wife, mother, father, brother, cousin, or daughter quite by accident in the grocery store from behind and snapped an awkward, blurry iPhone pic before the person could bolt with an angry face. Because it's been seven or ten or twenty years since they saw these relatives due to church culture, so they're reduced to things like stalking their own mothers. Said relatives are only to speak to them to try to encourage them to return. Once it is clear the wandering sheep isn't going back, there's no more interaction. It is withheld punitively. So these folks end up desperate for normal connections to their blood relatives. People from these stricter brethren groups talk about their relatives dying and never being told about it, though they live in the same town. There are stories on the news about brethren people then being interfered with when they try to attend their own relatives' funerals. False funeral times and locations are given. Physical violence has ensued. Because there are two kinds of interactions with still-in relatives in groups like this. On the one hand, sickly, sweetly worded messages about how incredibly sad everyone is that you have just wandered away and drifted off from the right path and how everyone is just really praying you will just come back. And on the other, robotic, cold dismissal, blankly pretending you aren't alive. A worldly nurse who phoned an inn exclusive to tell him that his out father had died was told only, you did your duty, goodbye. Click. Her duty was informing a son who did not show a sign of caring about his own father's death. Doesn't sound like having natural affection to me at all. I'm sure he was trying to be a good example to that unsaved nurse of what having Christ in her life could do. Those large bunker-like meeting halls have locks and gates and no windows. They have bouncers. They are like Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, and Scientology churches. They are like the Masons. The lack of windows and the separate plumbing hookups so as to not mix with unbelievers are absurdly mandatory. And all too often these groups churn out brainwashed sheep who, unlike me, are given really very little knowledge of the Bible growing up. Just the rules and what the man of God on earth, their Paul, says. Some brethren groups, unlike mine, which was a culture characterized by abstinence from alcohol, are plagued by not very secret alcoholism running rampant throughout the leadership and the congregants. Needless to say, this doesn't help anything. Many of these groups forbid anyone from getting any education beyond what the government of their country requires on pain of excommunication. Women, certainly. So university or college are forbidden to them, unlike me who had my arts degree partly funded by my parents and free suppers at the Dodds's on meeting nights if I was going to attend school. Really right-wing brethren groups excommunicate women who admit to using birth control as they view it as a form of preemptive abortion. 
Birth control? Never. We use his control. Some of these brethren groups, unlike mine, are without question full-on cults. They have a single man who is the infallible, unquestionable, worldwide leader with access to everyone's money. When you leave, you lose your job, your home, your family, and your car. Everything. Bruce Hales gets it. And outside Brethren Groups, there are numerous evangelical churches with Christian universities and schools which require students to sign contracts agreeing to abstain from all alcohol and from the wearing of shorts, from having tattoos or dyeing their hair, quote, unnatural colors, end quote, from having piercings, from listening to non-Christian music, etc., etc., etc. All this is to somehow help them learn about love, Jesus, Christianity, and the Bible better. You'd almost think it was all about correcting and controlling people, just like Jesus did. Sure, not all groups are so controlling and legalistic and rules-focused, but how many people are growing up in those today? How many Bob Jones students, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientologists, extreme Muslim, Catholic, Orthodox Jews, Sikh, and fundamentalist Christian children are out there right now? Is it okay to have a book for us? Because we're not supposed to have one. And when we meet them on Facebook, what do we tell them? Go back to your church and apologize for whatever it was you did and try to make things right? Report immediately to a happier church and get singing? When people leave these extreme forms of legalistic groups, the newspapers, magazines, and websites report the event. The following is part of an article about overcoming the odds, which also talks about a woman who had both of her hands cut off with a samurai sword by a crazed boyfriend and about someone with a crippling anxiety disorder. Here is Craig Hoyle to read the newspaper article about him. This is Craig Hoyle recording for Mike Moore. When he was kicked out of the exclusive brethren at 20, Craig Hoyle didn't know how to change a television channel. He'd never heard of Leonardo DiCaprio, played a video game or visited an art gallery. University and overseas travel were banned. Life as he knew it was in black and white. All he knew was the church and his work at the family tire store in Invercargill. Hoyle barely spoke to anyone outside of the exclusive brethren. Your whole life is within this very narrow network, and as long as you conform to that, you'll have a good life, he says today, in the sort of urban Auckland cafe he barely knew existed until a few years ago. My family had been in the exclusive brethren for seven generations, so it was all I knew. You're taught from birth that you're in the world, but not of this world. Essentially, they believe they're better than everyone else. The problems began when Hoyle, now 25, started asking questions. During the 2005 election, the exclusive brethren ran a $1.2 million leaflet campaign for the National Party. I remember what the church was saying and the media was different to what I knew was happening, so there were a lot of questions for me. Hoyle began clandestine visits to internet cafes where he quickly discovered all was not as he'd been taught. He googled the church and found screeds of books and articles casting it in a poor light. Meanwhile, he was also grappling with the fact he was gay, a disgrace in the eyes of the church. Despairing, he confessed to church leaders and the next two years became a nightmare. He was told he was possessed by demons, sent to purification camps in Australia with the head of the brethren, Bruce Hales, known to his followers as the elect vessel and given drugs to suppress his hormones otherwise known as chemical castration. I had really held out hope talking to Hales because I thought he would wave his arms or put his hands on me and I would be cured but it didn't work like that he says. 
Back in New Zealand, Hoyle realised he wasn't about to change and made contact with Rainbow Youth. The group supported him in leaving the Brethren and his first new home outside was with a lesbian couple. His family completely disowned him. He remembers the despair he felt when his dad held his nine-year-old sister's arms behind her back to prevent her giving him a hug. I think part of me died inside, he says. By the end of that day, I had no more grief, no more anger, just an empty hole where my emotions had been. He began to build himself a new reality, unravelling each lie. It helped to talk to others who had left the exclusive brethren, and it was heartening to find out that while he had been taught the world was a cruel, dark place, that wasn't true. I found it was a caring place, he says, full of people who went out of their way to help me. At first he looked for another religion, but these days describes himself as agnostic. After studying at Auckland University of Technology, he now works as a journalist at a busy metropolitan newsroom and has a partner. I can't think of anything in my life that's not forbidden by the church, he says. I think they would regard me as a completely evil person. For me, it's been such a massive shift in my way of thinking that when I look back at the way I used to be, it's like it's not me. Some habits are hard to break, though, like praying. If I want to think, I meditate, and the easiest way for me to do that is to pray, he says. It's not even that I buy there's a God out there listening, but it's so ingrained I just do it. Even though I would say I've safely transitioned, growing up in the Brethren is something that I think will continue with me for the rest of my life. If I'm in a room with ex-Brethren, we'll quickly lapse back into the old ways of talking. And what happens when my grandmother dies? I've met Brethren who have been out for 50 years and it still infiltrates their lives. Having said that, I have no regrets. I've had amazing opportunities in the last five years, more than my family will ever have, and that's really sad. Some of my brethren group want to suggest that perhaps the Taylor Hales brethren are an entirely different, entirely unrelated brethren group. The sad reality is that they share our roots and got from where we are right now to where they are right now in about 10 years, 1960 to 1970 mainly. And so could we. We are offshoots of each other. All it usually takes is one gimlet-eyed man claiming to be taking the Bible more seriously than anyone else. And in Christian circles, Rob Bell to the contrary, all too often legalism wins every single engagement, and legalists stay and hold power, while decent folk get up and walk out more often than not. Why is this the case? Why wouldn't it be the other way around? One of the unique, to me anyway, things about the Taylor Hales group as compared to my own is their high level of political awareness and involvement. They are repeatedly in the news for messing around in elections and parliament in Australia and New Zealand and England. My TW group never really mentioned or got into politics at all. We weren't supposed to vote or hold public office. We believed in a world that was evil and corrupt. Conservatives, liberals, whatevers alike. The world was getting worse every single day, it was never going to get better, and the rapture was really soon. We'd be whisked away, and it would all go utterly to apocalyptic crap. So things like gay marriage, or abortions, or gun control, or the death penalty, though they might well be seen as important, were very much not our concern. The Taylor Hills group, though, is rabidly conservative and gets into legal trouble for using large sums of money to try to swing elections in a conservative direction and for mass-mailing politicians. They are very concerned with protecting their tax-exempt status in various countries, and they are very anti-union. 
Andrew's story. Andrew is another Taylor Hale's brethren guy in England this time who, despite trying everything, had to eventually conclude that he was gay, whether he acted upon it or not. He looks remarkably like Ringo Starr, I think, anyway. Andrew knew that the exclusive brethren were recommending gay members get chemically castrated by brethren-friendly doctors. He felt that none of this was honest or good, let alone how a Christian group he was willing to be part of ought to act. He didn't know how to function as a genuine human being while being under their power. Like a lot of exclusives, alcohol became a real problem for him as well. He writes, I was not allowed to return to my parents' house after rehab. I had to stay with an older brethren couple because the brethren thought I would be tempted to relapse if I went home. All of this treatment was paid for by the brethren in the form of a loan. In order for them to do this, I had to agree to attend meetings and to conform to their way of life. Although they loaned the money, I actually had no choice in this course of action. In June this year, I was visited by two members of Brethren who told me I was withdrawn from for being deceitful. This was because I had been using Facebook to communicate with ex-members, and I would not tell the two brothers who I was talking to. I was also told that my work, I work for a Brethren company, wanted their laptop back, and from this it was obvious I no longer had a job, although I never heard this from work directly. I then lived with my parents, but had to live completely separately. My parents were not allowed to eat with me or be in the same room as me. After about a month of living like this, early July 2014, my parents moved out of their own home, I think, on the advice of the brethren. They told me that the situation was untenable and I would have to find my own place. I was offered temporary accommodation with a non-brethren Christian friend, so moved out of home. My parents were not at home when I left to get the train to London to stay with this friend. I did not have a chance to say goodbye to my parents. I asked for a photo of my brothers and their families to take with me and was told they would rather I didn't have one. Since leaving, I have had a few phone calls with my parents. However, I've been told it upsets my mum when I phone and any contact now has to be via email. I have now been able to rent a flat back in my hometown and I'm trying to get some stability in my life. All of these official shunning actions are presented as Christians acting in love, tough love, but there always seems to be a fearful, angry, vengeful tang to them that seems like something that actual love would not recognize, something incompatible with it. As an epilogue to his leaving story, Andrew posted on Facebook, My brother George phoned me today and informed me that my brother Bill was seriously ill in hospital, having had a massive brain hemorrhage five weeks ago and has been in intensive care slipping in and out of consciousness. I failed to comprehend why I wasn't told about this sooner. I spoke to my dad and mum on the phone about a week ago and asked if my brothers and their families were okay and was told that everything was fine. I was told in no uncertain terms that I couldn't have any contact with Bill. This hurts because he could die and I wouldn't have seen him. George also told me that if I wanted to contact the family, I wasn't to contact Dad and Mum, but to go through him. The high-handed and arrogant way he spoke to me this afternoon means there'll be no way I am going through him. A week later, Andrew posted, I phoned my parents last night to find out which hospital my brother Bill is in. I was told you are opposed to truth that has been handed down through the ages by the great ministers 
and you are in touch with persons who were opposed to the only true position. We can't tell you which hospital your brother is in. I was also told that I was withdrawn from for being in touch with said persons and not, and I quote, the problem you think you have got, being homosexual. I also learned during the course of the conversation that my brother was taken ill eight weeks ago, not five. Andrew was withdrawn from for being in touch with non-Taylor Hale's brethren on Facebook, people like me, people judged to be opposed to the only true position, the Taylor Hale's variation on the divine ground of gathering, or Matthew 18 and 20, one right place thing that I grew up under. Taylor Hale's brethren are not allowed contact with Tunbridge Wells brethren, Gospel Halt brethren, or any brethren. Besides saying that a Christian has to get a real height for the world, leaked transcripts of a fellowship meeting on June 9th of 2015 record Bruce Hales exhorting and advising his followers that speaking and associating with leavers is letting the poison in. He said that one might as well take arsenic or eat rat poison as talk to them. Absolutely everything Bruce Hales says at their daily meetings is transcribed and printed in hardcover books for members to buy and read and quote. What I found really heartbreaking was that Andrew still believes in God, but says he doesn't know how to pray to him now that he's left. Andrew was taught how to pray as a Taylor Hales brethren child, and there was a pray-by-numbers formula he always had to use. It started with praying for Bruce Hales, living in his $5 million mansion. Just as, until my mid-twenties, I could only pray with thee and thou and hast and wouldst and so on, Andrew says he can't pray at all without following that now anxiety-causing Taylor Hales formula, starting with prayers for Bruce Hales, because it's the only way he ever has prayed. And now Andrew can't pray with that formula either, so he just can't pray at all. I prayed with him, but only I could pray. He cried. I prayed. All he could add was amen at the end. Obviously, exclusive brethren aren't just excommunicated because they are gay men refusing chemical castration or for contacting other Christians. People also get excommunicated for persisting in using birth control, for saying they don't agree with decisions made by the elders, for having cell phones, keeping pets, and for being on Facebook. Often they are shut up first, which involves everyone in the house refusing to eat with them. Wives and husbands are required to eat and sleep separately and have no intimate relations. Breaking these rules can get them, in turn, excommunicated, fired, bankrupted, and divorced. People keep telling people like Andrew to move on and not dwell on the past. Well, it's in the present that Andrew can't see his own mother. As far as he knows, it's his future, too. Needless splitting asunder of what God joined together. Today, Andrew posted on Facebook, Watching Britain's Got Talent again tonight, some of the music has brought back many poignant memories. When Callum's mum started talking about the relationship between her and her son, it was the final straw. The tears began to flow. I miss you, mum. I always will. I had to leave and make my own way in life. But I just want you to know that it was nothing you had done that has caused this heartache to us both. It wasn't your fault nor mine. I blame that bastard religion you are stuck in. I thank God every day that I have managed to break free. Life is tough, but I'm winning through. I love you, Mum, from the bottom of my heart. And if Andrew's mother follows the rules of her brethren group, she will never be on Facebook, never look at Facebook, and never even create an account. 
if she follows, that is, what her group will deny are even rules at all. Others Wayne from Quebec is one of those excommunicated exclusive brethren fathers who has to fight to get to see his children. His wife divorced him when he was excommunicated because brethren elders pressured her to not maintain her unequal yoke with an unbeliever like him. Now she has to deny Wayne much access to his children under pain of excommunication herself. Wayne can't afford the expensive lawyers the brethren elders in his group routinely employ. He worries about the effect all the fighting over his children has on them. He posts a picture of his parents on Facebook with this caption. Note here how even extreme brethren groups are starting to lose the battle to keep computers and cell phones out of the hands of their secretive teenagers. They're still not allowed to keep animals as pets, though. To those of you who may remember them, uh, this is my parents, Bill and Bridget, a couple of weeks ago. I got this pic from Albert's Blackberry. When my kids come home and bring their phones, I always check for updated pics of my family who are still in the Brethren. Sadly, it's the only way I can know what they look like, and uh, I'm quite surprised at how aged my folks appear. Debbie, whose daughters, sons, and their spouses obey their elders' directives to shun their mother for not being a member of their Brethren group, writes these words which show up in my Facebook feed today. Happy birthday, Kaylee. I live in hope that one day I will be able to celebrate it with you. A reflection of a mummy's girl. I remember this day 37 years ago when I cradled you in my arms. From a mother whose arms haven't changed, they just wait. And a week later she posted, My heart was broken today. I was in the library again and Tamara, the daughter-in-law that introduced me to my grandson last time, was there again today with another daughter-in-law of mine and about five little ones. I knew Tamara had produced another son, so as soon as I saw her, I walked towards her. My two daughters-in-law and some other grandchildren I've never seen were quickly bundled into a group and hurried out the door. So I called out to them. No answer, just a more hurried trot. Now I was angry, so I trotted to and called up to Tamara at the door. I said, is this my latest grandson? Yes. He looks cute. He is. Why did you run away from me? No answer. By now my heart is beating, I am upset and I am shaking, so I say, you ran my grandchildren away from their grandmother so she couldn't see them. You should be ashamed of yourselves. What sort of religion supports a mother not being on it? A blank look and a walk away. Many brethren folk raised in the bondage of extreme legalism don't know how to leave their brethren culture. They simply can't. They know that the above situations would be realities for the rest of their lives if they left, and they simply can't face that. And many others, if they try to leave, soon run right back in and repent because they find they don't know how to survive outside alone. All of their photos removed from family photo albums, name never mentioned to children except as a warning, and so on. Edited out of existence. Unpersons. Unable to make new non-brethren friends in the big bad world often. And some leave and simply don't survive. The prediction made by their culture is that if they leave, they'll soon be found dead in a ditch with a heroin addiction and a crack baby. 
And the sad thing is that wild predictions like those have a way of encouraging things like that to really happen. These predictions certainly have a toxic effect on what people dare to hope and attempt. And then there's the troubling statistic that instances of reported sexual abuse are higher, 25% of leavers, according to Jill Mitten's research in the Taylor Hales Exclusive Brethren, than in mainstream society. That kind of thing really does not help set people on the road to adult success as healthy human beings. Children being raised to be virgins until marriage and to not date people, but being molested by relatives or elders is a formula for lasting psychological and spiritual damage and lifelong issues. So I, in my comparatively very tame close brethren group, didn't have it too badly at all. I am far from unique. My case doesn't even begin to be what one ought to call extreme, not when one looks at the larger picture. And these cases of church groups using excommunication to protect themselves from poorly designed members aren't isolated and rare at all. But there is hope. I don't even know how I got where I am today, faith pretty much intact. It was God, pure and simple. My culture was too deep and heavy and big a thing for me to conquer on my own, and it was determined to crush me. God was determined to free me, I think, to save me. Yet so many people today are enslaved by their fellow Christians who seem to need to control, censor, and correct everyone and everything all the time. So many today will move from church to church to church, seemingly needing someone to control, censor, and correct them. What can drive them out of this deep rut in which they're admired? I think Christ is the only answer. I think we'd be fools to not talk about all of this. I don't think singing more loudly, fingers in our ears, smiles pasted in place is the way to go. I don't think pretending this stuff is all in the past and is safe to forget about is going to work either. I think it's irresponsible to not try to be helpful to all the people in the body of Christ who are trying to deal with this stuff right now. They are our brothers and sisters. They need time, and we can't rush them into our Maranatha mosh pits. And they're more than used to people living as if they didn't exist. A user named Eska Beloved, writing on an ex-Jehovah's Witness site, shares her own thoughts on something that sounds terribly familiar to us brethren folk. I have come to believe that shunning is not a one-time thing that happens once and you just move on. I did at one time think that this is what it was, and expected to be able to move on with my life. However, after 15 years of disconnection and missing out on every conceivable form of familial association, love, support, and good times and bad times, and all that those teach us about how to grow as a human being, I now feel differently. Shunning is a silent, insidious form of psychological torture. It is nearly impossible to describe its effects unless you have felt it yourself. It eats away at your insides in a way that can be invisible even to oneself. And it is an ongoing thing. It happens every day. Every day I get up and I don't have my family is a day I am being subjected to abuse. Even if my day rolls on the same as yesterday, even if nobody is yelling at me or breaking my bones or whatever, every day my family chooses to maintain their silence and their distance means that every day they choose to hurt me. I think it is supremely important to acknowledge that the suffering each day is real. It has a source. It's not some internal personality flaw one has. It is a very deliberate strategy with aims and rules. It is a strategy designed specifically to hurt you in the most deep and abiding way. 
It is a strategy to make you believe that you are completely unlovable and always will be. It strangles you from within your own mind. If you don't stop to acknowledge that you are an ongoing victim of a campaign of psychological torture, you end up believing that you are the broken one, the unlovable one, instead of an innocent victim of a vicious group bent on controlling its members through fear of experiencing what we are going through, on coercing through pain those who have strayed, and on punishing those who stay away. Talking about what happened and continues to go on just might be how some people deal how they move on. It just might be good and useful. Maybe we're supposed to connect and share and help. Christians are encouraged to fill up Facebook, daily conversations, and pretty much any room they're in with passionate infomercial talk about how much fun they say they're having at church on Sunday, and how many people showed up, and how into it they all were too, how much God is moving, how humbled they were to be asked to speak. They've even got pictures and video. They say they're so blessed and also just humbled by how incredibly awesome church is for them. So what's wrong with the rest of us with our anaphylactic PTSD church flashback freakout responses, the recurring church-themed horror dreams we still have? Why can't we just be happy at Disney Church? Because apparently it's mandatory for us all to be happy. And that's quite a lot of pressure. I don't know how to be happy in a church, especially a perky peppy one, but I'm told I have to be. I realize I don't actually have to be happy to get along there. I just have to seem happy, and I have to shut up about anything that makes me unhappy. But I feel like, for me, that would be backsliding, going right back to what Christ saved me from. And talking about the other side of things, the less fulfilling and sometimes problematic church experience that is reality for at least half of Christians, gets shut down very quickly, scornfully, frightenedly, by people who really wouldn't think of themselves as mean girls or bullies of any description. All this despite the simple fact that it's unlikely that anywhere near half of the Christians in your community are enjoying church and finding it anything but an obligation and a strain. And so many have been messed up by it that they're never going back inside a church again. They need Christians. They just don't want to go inside a church to meet with them. What can be done for them? Is that a deal breaker? They won't go to church like they should, so F those guys? Will you talk to them anyway? Legalism has not stopped happening to people. Worse yet, in daily life, we often keep finding ourselves repeating those old patterns of correct and control without ever learning to love, to live and let live. We are not the world's policemen. Our opinions do not matter so much that we need to call them scripture and proceed to hurt people with them. Why does legalism lead while love leaves? A conversation I had with Hugh shed some interesting light on the whole question of people having differing experiences in brethren groups. Hugh went to my brethren group, but in America. Thing is, when he tossed out the last name of the elder who was the face of legalism in Hugh's area, though he didn't actually go to their assembly or live in their town, I knew the man. Let's call him Brother Schindler. I knew his first name. I knew the names of his children and grandchildren. His influence was felt in my country, too. His influence was certainly felt in Hugh's area, though Brother Schindler lived hours away and attended a different assembly than Hugh did. Legalism spreads. 
Leaven, or yeast, is what the Bible compares the legalistic hypocrisy of the Pharisees to. And in Mark's Gospel, Jesus doesn't just say leaven of the Pharisees, but also the leaven of Herod. The Herod, after the one who had infant children killed so as to keep the status quo unchanged and keep his own position of prominence. This was the Herod, who had just had John the Baptist executed. Why? Hugh and I wondered. Why does legalism seem to beat love to people's hearts every time? Because it appeals to what makes us feel holy, Hugh thought. True, sometimes the rest of us aren't actually willing to live up to that inhumanly pious, for-show lifestyle like some other guy is. But it can kind of be a point of pride that someone among us is living up to it, and never letting us forget about it. Then, we can perhaps resolve to live a bit more like that legalistic guy every week. And we don't even have to actually follow through on that resolution. We just have to show support, in theory, for that idea. And if that guy wants to run things, well, okay. Just as there was a last name Hugh tossed out to explain who and what made his area as legalistic as it was, and it was nothing compared to around here, he had another name, too. Let's call this guy Mr. Potter. Mr. Potter was a man in Hugh's very assembly who did an awful lot to make it bearable in there. Someone who knew about tolerance and love. Someone who actually showed the fruit of the Spirit to people in general, including Hugh. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Someone who wasn't a clashing symbol in Hugh's ear all the time because people could feel love in him. Mr. Potter knew something about kindness. Of this, there could be no doubt in anyone's mind. And I knew this second last name, too. But as is too often the case, Mr. Potter wasn't someone who traveled the country, speaking at Bible conferences and writing things and being recorded and quoted and invited to help people keep things nice and strict, not like Brother Schindler was. No, Mr. Potter was just a serious, warm, quiet soul who made it nicer near him, who people could feel Jesus in. Mr. Potter knew the Bible. His wisdom was there, but it was a quiet wisdom that didn't pursue people to try to make them think more like him. So I could picture the strident Hitlerian tone and listen to some mentally tape-recorded sound bites and name the children of Brother Schindler, the legalistic one. And he's still in fellowship. But I have only a vague recollection of Mr. Potter, the loving guy. Because Mr. Potter was quieter, wasn't traveling around so much shoving his opinion through everyone's week. If Mr. Potter had attended my assembly, I'm sure it would be a different story. I might well have gotten to know him better. Before he left, that is. Hugh remembers the 1991 division we had, and he remembers Brother Schindler not only staying, but being in there kicking with both feet the whole time, on tour, speaking constantly, loudly, and tirelessly, a voice of harsh correctness, with people leaving in droves under the din of that clashing symbol, the work of the flesh minus the fun bits. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And despite this clear fruit, Brother Schindler was seen as less fleshly, worldly, and permissive than Mr. Potter, who was increasingly troubled by all the nasty that was always going on. This preferring of Brother Schindler would have been especially supported by the simple fact that Mr. Potter, when things got downright vicious, left, went somewhere nicer, proving himself to be wrong and poorly grounded in the scripture, having been so clearly all along. He was always a bit like that, people said, 
not solid like us. But Brother Schindler was solid. He stayed and got ever louder and more opinionated, more important, had more and more time to devote to traveling around. And old age did not mellow him a whit. He aged like a shopping bag full of broken glass. It was a while before they could diagnose him as suffering dementia. But Mr. Potter's name was seldom, if ever, mentioned again in those circles. It was like he'd died. Hugh tells me he asked a question during the troubles as their assembly was being gutted. Hugh asked everyone, Why are all the nice people leaving? No one had an answer. Hugh said this made them speechless each time he asked it. There was no way anyone could have pretended that those who stayed were the nice ones. Endless arguments were shrilly put out there, indicating those who stayed were writer, of course, more obedient, more serious about scripture, but love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There was no arguing who had more of those, and that those people were gone, had been driven away by enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Most of the list of the works of the flesh— the dark, twisted human stuff stayed. The weak, corruptible stuff remained, not the divine stuff. I guess this brings an important lesson. That list of fruit of the Spirit, things like kindness, they're far more important than we're willing to admit and put time into. They can make it possible for troubled, struggling people to get by. They can make all the difference. They all flow out of love, and love is vital. Love will lead you to those things. And that list of our favorites of the works of the flesh? No matter how wrong we think someone is, if we are the poster boys for enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy, this is all the evidence anyone needs to see that we've turned to the dark side, that we are not serving good, that we cannot claim to be living like Christians or feeding Christ's sheep or being anything but false shepherds, teachers, and prophets scattering the flock to the four winds. If we believe that our culture is a human system and part of the world, and we believe that in terms of power hierarchy, it is upside down and will need to be upended by God to suit him, the first made last and the last first, this all makes sense. People who need power and control and importance claw their way to the top. Ambition and lust for power are rewarded. People who love and have more to give than they need to take do not work to get themselves to the top of the heap. Legalism will never lead anyone to love. It just doesn't work that way, because legalism is something we do instead of love. It's turned away and is proceeding in the precise opposite direction. Legalism seeks to control others and only calls all that controlling and correcting effort love. It's more a case of it adjusting everyone and everything nearby to try to make itself more comfortable. Love doesn't need that. Love seeks to restrain itself if it is in danger of hurting someone who is truly loved. Love suffers long rather than corrects quickly. So I guess kindness is far more important than we ever suspected. I should know. I suck at it. But I'm learning to take it more seriously, and I'm seeing how powerful it is. Anne writes, I feel much more tuned into kindness as a value rather than rules. I can connect to people so much better now. It's radically changed me as a teacher, and my students respond really positively to me now. I enjoy human interaction because I can value humans who are following all different life paths. 
however rule-oriented my parents were, they did raise me with a lot of warmth, which has always been a foundation for my life. Sounds like parenting done right. Seed. I've lived long enough now to have watched an entire generation be brought up to church five times a week, memorizing 18th century translated Bible verses every week, starting before they ever went to kindergarten, hearing weekly gospel meetings, attending innumerable Bible conferences, and living under stringent clothing, hairstyle, speech, and recreational guidelines or rules or expectations. I have grown up with these folks, and years later, have seen where they've ended up in terms of church and faith. It's like a grand experiment. There was this one Bible verse that was always quoted to parents who were clearly discouraged with how stubbornly their kids resisted every possible attempt being made to brethrenize them. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22.6 Now, despite forcing kids to memorize this verse, many parents weren't quite sure what to do with it. They felt like maybe what it seemed to be promising was simply not coming to pass, because the way they read it, they thought it meant, Force your child to live according to the Brethren lifestyle expectations, and when he is an adult, he will never leave the Brethren movement and its ways. But the kids were leaving the Brethren movement and its ways, eagerly and in droves. Having a look at Jay and Darby's translation of it makes it sound quite different. Train up the child according to the tenor of his way, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And translations like The Message have a much less rules-intensive wording. Point your kids in the right direction. When they're old, they won't be lost. Every brethren parent knew that no matter how hard and faithfully they spanked their kids for not sitting quiet and still in church, often with wooden paint stir sticks or little breadboard stashed between the car door and the driver's seat in their family vehicle for this very purpose, they didn't seem to be able to make certain kids love the Bible and meetings. And many teenagers rebelled with an intensity that seemed to be fueled by nothing short of revenge for having endured such a cloistered upbringing. Payback hairstyles, tattoos, piercings, outfits, dating partners, and addictions. And some brethren-raised adults definitely became atheists. How to explain all this? Well, Harvey told me that in the tenor of his way means according to what is the natural character and personality of your child. He feels that the verse is saying, knowing your child and having a sense of who God made him to be and who he will become as an adult, teach him how to follow a sensible way that he should go, a good life direction given all of that. And for the rest of his life, he will stay on that personalized life path with God that you've started him on. My father always got a very serious face on when he quoted a related verse in Ephesians 6 to me. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He felt that this showed his own responsibility not to tease me overmuch and to be a good father by continually admonishing, lecturing me, to live like a brethren Christian. I can't help but notice that a word was being skipped right past to get on to the word admonition. That word is nurture. That's a love word. It's about feeding and hugging and protecting and looking out for a kid, waiting for him to grow at his own pace, encouraging his development. And we tended to skate right past it to get to the next word. Admonition, the lecture. So what did a lot of us expect to be coming from the Lord or our parents at all times? Rules and admonitions to follow them. 
and threats of disapproval, disappointment, and withdrawn love and support if we showed any signs of not being willing to follow them, or not being deeply into the culture in general. I think a lot of people's kids didn't continue on in our culture because they weren't made to feel much in the way of love, peace, tolerance, acceptance, forgiveness, mercy, and all of that. They were mainly just the rules. Those rules were mainly what they were made aware of and not enough else. Love was always conditional upon conformity, and there wasn't a lot of tolerance for difference or doubt. Love was for decent living young people. There wasn't a lot of grace, mercy, or forgiveness being experienced personally by us from the older people. There was talk. There were claims. But what was felt? Many of us felt like the older people saw us as continual question marks. Would we carry on? Would we keep going on for him? A whole lot of young people, in fact, were more than willing to dub our culture right so long as they got to leave it. So long as they didn't themselves have to carry on in it, the show could go on without them. They'd embrace being wrong so long as they were free. Jesus' parable of the sower seems to apply here. The story was told by Jesus while sitting in a boat to people gathered on the shore. He told it in the form of a riddle or parable so the prophecy about them not understanding anything would come true. In the parable, a man plants his seed. Some is eaten by birds. Some falls on rocky ground with no depth of soil. Some falls among thorns. Some falls in good deep soil. Jesus' disciples asked him why he was telling symbolic stories and not just speaking plainly. Jesus explained that he was purposely saying things so that people would not understand. The disciples, though, got a special decoding of the stories. They didn't understand it either. As to the seed, Jesus told them it represented the kingdom of heaven being conveyed to people. Sometimes the news that the kingdom of heaven was among them was heard, but instead of taking root in the hearts of some hearers, it was carried away by the evil one, symbolized by the seed-stealing birds. Other times, the news of the kingdom was received with enthusiasm and receptiveness, but the heart of the person was shallow. He or she lacked roots and depth, so that when there was trouble or persecution, this message was tossed aside. This was seen in the seeds springing up immediately, then shriveling up in the sun, as there was no depth of soil. Other times it took root, but anxiety, fear, and stress caused it to die out. This was seen in the seed which fell among thistles. Sometimes, though, it landed on good soil. Depending on the soil, it grew a little or a lot, but it remained and grew to maturity until harvest. I have lived to see brethren-raised people of all ages who, though they condemn me four ways to hell with an endless barrage of scripture shards they keep in a speed-draw holster, absolutely cannot talk with me about a few certain things. The kingdom of heaven, the Holy Spirit, what God wants on earth, how to treat other Christians, any form of love that doesn't involve avoiding contact with people, or anything much about Jesus that doesn't start only after the rapture occurs. I have lived to see ones who, when younger, quietly avoided and looked to alleviate boredom with what was going on in our meetings. I have then seen them go on to become quiet atheists, folks who just didn't really think about that stuff anymore. Or people who go out to a church, but they don't really believe anything much. 
there's really nothing going on in them that you wouldn't see in someone who is just a very casual, card-carrying member of a Justin Bieber fan club. I have lived to see people's faith kind of blur and fade until God is to them a kind of faceless, willless, heartless, energy-field thingy. Nothing that explains Jesus, really. Nothing that would send him, certainly. Nothing that cares what happens to us much. I have lived to see people who grew up and are passionately seeking answers still, sometimes through other churches or in other religions, pursuing a very zealous, preachy, dogmatic approach to atheism in some cases. Quite brethren-like atheism, really. And some people are like me, having been officially recognized by our church as people to be shunned because we've wandered away from the truth, yet decades later, we're still reading the Bible, arguing about it on the internet, and writing all manner of long, tedious things relating to it. How do you explain legalism in this parable? Is the legalist good, deep, rich soil, receptive to the news that God is working now in the world, that the kingdom of heaven is here and springing up in a way calculated to produce a huge crop of more good seed? Is the legalist like regular soil, only deeper and more rich with nutrients? Well, the next parable Jesus told right after that one was a very related story. A man sows his seed, just like in the first parable. And then an enemy, rather than stealing the seed that's been planted, sows the seeds of poisonous weeds right in the same field. When the greenery starts to appear, the good plants and the weeds spring up together. Everyone freaks out and tells the sower what has happened, and they ask if they should uproot the whole crop and start over. The sower tells them to let the poisonous tares grow right up with the good crop so that at harvest time it can all be sorted out so the good plants can live and grow and bear fruit. This always made a lot more sense to me than the presented idea that our church group was a collection of true believers with a few duds in it. Nope, we have poison planted in there too, springing up. Weeds grow too, and sometimes animals and people eat them and get sick. Another New Testament image is of leaven, yeast, being added to what is intended to be yeast-free bread. It quickly spreads right through the whole lump of dough and cannot be picked out or dusted off. It can only be killed when the dough is baked in a fire. This image, along with the image of cancer, is used to talk about pervasive sin that gets in among believers, sin like legalism. I was raised to interpret this type of pervasive sin as bad doctrine, false teaching. When people got kicked out for false teaching in my lifetime, it generally involved them talking overmuch about the kingdom of heaven or not believing in the rapture. We used this to justify silencing and kicking out anyone who said anything during Bible study that sounded odd to us. But in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus warns everyone about exactly what kind of spreading evil this leaven was meant to represent. He says, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And he'd made it abundantly, repeatedly clear what his beef was with them. The leaven of the Pharisees was living for show, pious legalism. We grew up with that. And I guess one day, God will sort it all out. That's comforting and troubling. I think it means we need to repent of and disassociate ourselves from actions and attitudes, but not people, which manifest anything that smacks of Pharisee spirit and methods. I try to work with God to get this done in me. It's taking a while. What happened to me next? 
So did this grand experiment, this individualistic counterculture journey of ours get me anywhere at all? Did I find God in a more authentic way, or was it just folly after all? I have told the story in any number of ways, and I have always left out a whole aspect of it, perhaps the most important aspect. I have burdened myself with trying to convince people that something was rotten in Denmark in our church culture, that we weren't being allowed to be all we'd been created to be, that our collective approved, prescribed, one-size-fits-all attitude wasn't as spiritual as it might have been, and stuff like that. But I have always been a bit scared to move on and really do what I think I should in order to make growth possible. I was raised that any lone sheep was obviously straying from the flock rather than the shepherd and would inevitably wander off and fall into spiritual ruin. Every time someone has challenged me about what God means to me practically now that I'm not going to meeting, I am kind of scared to tell them. But what is your walk with the Lord like, people demand, when I refuse to go to their church more than a couple of times. They lose all faith in me if I'm not interested in joining them by applying to a body-dividing membership list, some of which have Christian behavior contracts called various other things for me to sign. I feel like I've certainly gone to a lot of trouble and turned my back on a lot of very respected traditional things, so in order to prove it was all worth it, I'd really better be a Christian Zen guru on a mountain with all the answers right now. And I'd better have arrived somewhere truly spectacular, and I'd better be able to give a clear method for getting there too. But I'm not, and I haven't, and I can't. Even so, there is a third part to this book.